So we're going again with Don Carmody. Don, thank you so much for getting up this early and coming down to Cambridge. <laughs> oh, man. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. We, uh, we don't do the remote thing. Um, as I mentioned, I, I don't think I know how. I guess I should learn. But, yeah, uh, we're not techies. We just wanted to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I've done a few podcasts, but, you know, uh, from California or wherever. So I was, I'm used to it being uh, remote or Zoom or right. Microsoft Team or something like that. Right. So. Yeah. No, uh, this <laughs> I love. My nice wife might to... come in and have a seat just for a moment, sure. Don. Uh, just don't pay attention to her. That's <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a not nice thing to say. <laughs> the, uh, um, anyway, so, uh, hey, you're here. This is incredible. Um, this is so much more intimate than a Zoom call or hmm, uh, remote, and, and I love that you're here. This is incredible. Yeah, welcome to the room. Well, great. Boy, you got you know? cars. I do. It's a, ni- <laughs> it's a 1956 Ford pickup truck. Which I own. There's one out the back door, mm-hmm. um, and I've been collecting little toys, and people buy them for me. <laughs> uh, it's yeah, I know it's a little silly, but uh, it is silly, but it's it's a pool room. It's kind of fun. Yeah, 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 no, for sure. <laughs> yeah, this I is, hadn't noticed they were all the same model. Yes, now that I look at them, they are pretty much a lot of the same model. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah they pretty much are. I every think one every of, single... this is this is a 1955 right here, but every mm-hmm. everything else is a 56. Oh yeah, the same as my truck. Well. Yeah, I have my toy, and it's a '57 Porsche. Oh, nice. Yeah, that uh, I finally I just last weekend put it in the container for the winter. Oh, I have a container up at my place uh, in the in the Quarthas, and that's where he sleeps. Wicked, <laughs> sweet. Um, 1957. Yeah. So that's tiny. Very it's, tiny. It's a sports yeah. car. It's a real sports car. Yeah. What yeah. color is it? White. Oh, I love it. Tan leather. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, jeez. You'll have to show me a picture after we're done. I'd love to see it. I got it in 1985. Nice. Bought it off a movie. Oh, really? (laughs) Did you get a deal? Uh, Yeah, I did get a deal, actually. Yeah, it was driven by Chris Christopherson. Oh, my God. A movie called Welcome Home. Yeah, right on. So, yeah. Wow. Very cool. So, Andrew had a question. Mm. Um, do you still uh, do you still get excited about making movies? Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's funny uh, because of COVID, we really haven't been doing very much, and it's really been sort of gnawing at me. And you know, when I drive by uh, somebody else's circus parked on the street, I sort of get, yeah, why isn't that not my circus? <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, so we're we're hoping to get a few things uh, finally cooking. Uh, uh, in the uh, early New Year. Right on. Good so, for you. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so aside the, from that, we were always busy. Always, always, always. Two, three projects a year. So. Well, people who don't know you mm-hmm. won't know, but you are arguably the biggest, uh, most prolific film and television producer in this country. Mm, yeah, I guess that's probably fair to say. It would yeah. Be, uh, based on volume. <laughs> right on. I mean, your IMDb list. Oh, my God, man. <laughs> producer dream um do you find that movies today while you're working away are the scripts still the same do you still get the same excitement are the writers still just as good are... yeah, yeah it's um when a, a great script comes across my desk which is not 
often. I gotta, you know, even in uh, the busiest times, it uh, it wasn't that often. Um, but when one does come, it's really exciting, and you want to try and get it going out there. Right. Now, of course, that's always my personal take on it or my opinion of a screenplay. And sometimes I get disappointed when people don't share my enthusiasm. <laughs> of course. But, uh, or aren't as enthusiastic as I am. But, uh, yeah, no, I really always look forward to it. And it's, uh, you know, especially if uh, I got a comedy. So, uh, okay. you know, they're hard. It's the old uh, vaudeville adage, dying is easy, comedy is hard. <laughs> right. So for every great drama script I get, uh, you know, uh, I probably go through about 20 bad comedies. <laughs> wow. So, wow. What, what makes a bad comedy, though? Like, I, I'm just curious. There's a lot of people out there wondering. Not funny. <laughs> oh, not, oh, well, that works. Yeah. Now, how, or, how often do you get words on a, on a, on a page that uh, you feel, well, if with the right cast, this mm -hmm. could be perfect? Um, well, uh, pretty, uh, I mean, when I, I get a great script, that's it. Because when I start reading it, uh, a great script leads me to sort of be casting it in my head as I'm reading it. You know, once I get in there about the first, you know, third, I go, okay, this is, this has got something here. Mm -hmm. And I'll start, you know, reading it with specific actors in mind. Oh, or that's interesting. specific types of actors and things like that. Not that I can always get those actors. Sure. But uh, it but allows me to, you know, move forward. And especially when I now turn around and go, okay, I got to start the process. I got to, you know be raising the money, getting a director, and then going out to cast. So it's good if you have a kind of wish list of cast going in. Right on. So. And I imagine that there are, uh, 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 I mean, how many actors out there when they see your name come up on the phone, that they're answering and they're excited to hear what you have to say. Well, it's invariably their agents. <laughs> well, I, well, I, I suppose mean, that's true. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> You know, even if I reached out to the actor uh, individually, which I have uh, on several occasions, depends on the actor, um, they'll go, that's great, that's great. So, you know, send it to me. Oh, and by the way, call my agent and let them know you talk to me. Right. So uh, they're all pretty careful. They've been had it drilled into their heads by their agents. Don't talk to producers by yourself. I so, can imagine. Yeah. But... Uh, no, it's uh, having an interpersonal relationship is great, but it's still, you know, it's a, it's a business. Business is business. That's sure. It. Sure. Exactly. Don, Don, do you mind, sorry, if we just bring your mic in a little even closer? I know it's... Okay. Is that... Yeah, it would, close, close. Yeah, I mean, if you're comfortable with it. Yeah. yeah, okay. Cool. Thank you. So what was the first film you ever made? Uh, the first film I ever made as a producer or the first film I ever worked on? Oh, that, yeah, let's go with work on. It was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Oh, I know the movie. Way out in uh, Vancouver. And uh, I was a, uh, uh, a free laborer on it. I, uh, in, <laughs> I was the uh, um, uh, teaching assistant to a, a guy called Mark Gervais, who was my professor in film uh, theory and history at Loyola University. And uh, he was a very well-known um film critic. He wrote for Cahiers de Cinema and uh, a number of other influential film magazines and befriended a lot of 
of filmmakers. And he had this habit of loaning out his students as free labor <laughs> to these, uh, these uh, various directors uh, uh, to help them out. And uh, he came in one day and, well, actually, the first film I worked on was actually a thing called uh, Journey that uh, um, Paul Almond, a Quebec director, was uh, directing. And he, at the time, was married to Genevieve Bougeau. And she was in that movie. And I worked on that for, you know, as a driver or something for a couple of weeks. But uh, that was one of the first freebie uh, ones. Then he came into the, uh, into the classroom one day and said, I have an amazing opportunity uh, to work on a film with Robert Altman, uh, but it's in Vancouver and you got to get yourself out there and you have to put yourself up. And, you know, there's no salary or anything like that. So That's a commitment. And that is it. So I... Uh, <laughs> I was like, okay. And I knew about this thing called drive away where you could pick up a car and as long as you drove it out, uh, they would give you the car or truck or whatever. In my case, it was a Bell telephone truck. And um, uh, they paid for the gas and, and the, uh, the driving and then you dropped it off in Vancouver. And that's how I got out to Vancouver. And then a friend of my father's had a, uh, a guest room above his garage and that's where I stayed that's awesome so that started on it. yeah well it was <laughs> yeah but no it was working for free and then i showed up on the set and the production manager was a guy called jim margellis and uh he had no idea what to do with me he had no idea that this was even happening he was like who are you what are you doing what am i supposed <laughs> to do with you and it's like this is a completely union show i can't do anything <laughs> with you you know and um, I had no idea. I'd never been on a professional movie set. And, um, but I went out and introduced myself to Paul Altman and said, okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> and then went off and continued directing. Um, and I sort of hung around and tried to help and all of that. And, you know, some guys were like, yeah, sure. Uh, give me a hand here. Other guys were like, you touch that. I'm calling the steward, you know? <laughs> totally. So, uh, and then Jim came to me uh, one day uh, very early on and said uh, um, actress needs to go into Vancouver so here's my car keys driver and of course it was Julie Christie ah. and as we were driving she was charming and lovely and she was like who you know who are you you're so young because I was you know 18 or 19 and uh, I don't know she just seemed to be taken with me and I helped her in town and ran her around and various and sundry things. And we, we got back. She said, well, so what do you do? And I said, well, I don't really know what I do. You know, I just came out here as a volunteer and I, you know, and I'm helping out. So she said, OK, come with me. And we went into Margella's office and she said, he's driving me now. I like him. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I became Julie Christie's driver. Now, did that get you into the union? No. Oh, okay. So you're no, kind of no. flying under the radar. Yeah, under the radar. It was She was a personal request, so the Teamsters couldn't... They were very unhappy. But, oh, that's, uh, really? that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. And um, it was... Uh, but it was fun. Nobody wanted to go against her. And it was early days of Canadian cinema, so... Sure. There weren't that many even Teamster drivers in those days. Did so, this experience uh, push your film uh career a little bit oh yeah well i mean when i saw how our professional crew worked i was like wow that's amazing although there were many things 
that Altman treated that were very different from, uh, you know, I uh, subsequently found out. I mean, things like he would dress up the carpenters and the electricians in period costumes and have them wander around the sets and do their jobs. As extras, kind of thing. Extras, because it was about the the building of a town. Oh. So they were building the set as they were filming it. Man, that's cool. That's and, really... and, uh, yeah, it was quite intriguing and all that. Anyway, I was out there for almost three weeks and, um, you know, spent a lot of time with, uh, private time with... with uh, Julie Christie, and you know, occasionally I would drive her and Warren because they were together at the time, and inhaled a lot of pot smoke <laughs> because they would smoke it in the car all the time, and um, yeah, it was quite amazing. And you know, I didn't really have any, you know, conversations with, uh, um, you know, the, the Robert Altman much. He was like, "Hi, how are you?" That was about it, mm-hmm. you know, and. Uh, I went to dailies because I was taking Julie and, and Warren and uh, would sit there and listen to him talk and all that. So I thought it was quite an amazing experience. So a bit of an education. Oh, yeah. And then I went back to the school and finished up uh, film school. And bragged about your experience oh, in Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. And I've remained in love with Julie Christie to this minute. <laughs> so my next question yeah. is, have you uh, have you had an occasion to work with Julie again? No. No. Oh, what no. a shame. Yeah. So... No, but we've exchanged messages a couple of times over the years. People that knew me, worked with her, and said, I bring regards from Don Carmody, you know. Oh, before. sweet. So, yeah. Now, do you find that working for free, uh, this uh, labor uh, thing, I mean, it's gone, It's kind of gone away now. Nobody would expect that sort of thing to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but there must have been a certain um, integrity to it. Because the, the kids working for uh, for nothing just on a movie set sort of are there just for the desire and the passion of the movie. Yeah. Um, in a way, you sort of get what you pay for, though, sometimes. Okay. Um, but in other cases, it's people make their, their cred. So, you know, I've had people working on films for me for free, which I don't like doing. And I generally say, no, if you're going to be on the film, you're going to get paid. I pay them as little as possible. they got to get something. Sure. You know, and it, it, it brings a certain responsibility that, you know, you're being paid, so you better do the job. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, no, mostly it's when people work for me in very, very um, entry positions, it's because of connections or, you know, I found them through the film school where I've been lecturing or, you know, that type of thing or mentoring and... Um, you know, the people that stay in the business are the ones that go out of their way and they always want to make themselves more useful than anybody else. So that makes sense. Yeah. So, and I, I've seen it happen where some kids that came in and, you know, they've just gone on to do amazing things. And then others like they came and worked for me once and I've never heard from them again. Right. So, well, it's not for everybody. It's not. No. Has anyone ever bugged you and bugged you? And you just said, "Go, I, I can't do this, can't do this." And then all of a sudden, there was a time when, uh, when, when somebody uh, was just so obsessively trying to get into the business, uh, and then you've given them that opportunity, and they've grown. Um, <clears throat> if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, I get pestered a lot. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> I imagine so, you uh, do. It's hard to differentiate the ones that pester me more than uh, than usual. Um, 
but uh, no, there have been a number of uh, <clears throat> of uh, people that I've worked with that have gone on to do things. So when uh, a case in point was, uh, I was pestered relentlessly by his father, who was a well-known uh, businessman. He owns a company here. I don't know if I want to go into who it is. That's fine. But, uh, and then finally I had a film that, that worked and I said, okay, send your kid over. So he came, I met him. He was a nice presentable young man. He had just finished university. Uh, and this was his like first real job. He was from a very wealthy family. Uh, and I thought, oh, this could be a disaster. And generally what I try and do with newcomers, uh, people that have never been in the business before, I mean, I look at it as I, if you want to be in this business, you got to figure out what you want to do in this business. So what I would do is I'd say, okay, work in the office for a couple of weeks and just, you know, I'll get a sense because, you know, the, the production manager, the line producer, or, you know, the, even the production coordinator will tell me this guy's a piece of, you know, right. Sure. You know, Makes sense. And whatever. So, and he did all right. And so I said, okay, uh, this week you're going to be with this department. And then after that week, I'll put you with that department. And you'll see how it, it goes and all around. And the thing that happened with this kid was after a week with the department, they'd come to me and go, do I have to give him back? I, I could really <laughs> use him. You know, I was like, hmm. And I'd take him away and I'd give him to another department. And then that guy would come to me and go, do I have to give him back? <laughs> you know, was, And I realized that this guy was just out there knocking it out of the park every time with everybody that he was working with, which wow. is pretty rare. Um, I've had it a couple of times, but this time was. Anyway, he ended up uh, moving on from my show to another show, and then he went uh, on his own. He went to Los Angeles and working as a... There a lot of people work for free as interns, as, <clears throat> uh, you know assistance or, or whatever and they take an incredible amount of, boo of abuse and uh, he ended up uh, working for a company run by Larry Ellison's daughter and in no time ended up as her personal assistant and then it seemed like a year later I heard and he was getting a producer credit on <laughs> all these movies that wow. they were making and he just skyrocketed wow so now, and he's now an independent producer. So oh, fabulous. Yeah. So and it started with you. Well, I, that's kind of how I started. Uh, I worked <clears> as a driver for, uh, on a movie called the uh, first paid position was as a driver on a film called U-Turn that was being produced by a company in Montreal called Cinepex. Now in those days, movies were all out of Montreal. Toronto had nothing. They had a few scam lawyers raising, you know, tax shelter money. But real people making movies, real producers making movies are all, all out of Montreal. Cinepix or Astral or, you know, um, Pierre David's company. I can't remember what it was called anymore. And uh, so I was working for this company or this film. And uh, I was a driver, driving rushes back and forth because they were shooting in Smith Falls in Ontario and uh, the processing lab and everything was in Montreal. So I would make that trip twice a day and they would give me a list of stuff to do in Montreal for the various departments. Go pick up this, go buy that, this, that and the other. So I did that and I was working, you know, 
14, 15 hours a day and driving 100 miles an hour on the 401 from Montreal all the way up to Smith Falls. <laughs> and then the, they, were, they would show dailies to the director in the hotel ballroom where they were staying in Smith Falls. And the, the cameraman had trouble one day, very early on, uh, doing the projector because he knew how to you know, run a projector because he was a cameraman, he came up through the ranks. And that's what I did in university, put myself through school. I worked for the audiovisual department as a projectionist and lighting technician and things like that. So I said, oh, here, let me help you. You've got the loop wrong. And I did, anyways, I became the projectionist from then on. I <laughs> added an extra hour to my day <clears throat> uh, with no additional money. But so I would uh, run the projector and then the director, then I'd take the dailies back to Montreal. But while the rushes were showing, the actual director, George Cassinger, would dictate notes to me to take back to the producers in Montreal. So then I'd drive them back and I'd do all my chores and then I'd go out to Cinepix. They had their own screening room at their offices in Montreal. And I would watch the dailies with John Dunning, who was the head creative guy there. He was one of the partners. And... Uh, I would give him the director's notes and he would give me his notes to take back to the director. And I always refer to that as my real film school. Yeah, that was I, great. You know, it was like, wow, working with <clears throat> the best producer and one of the top directors at the time in early Canadian cinema and, and doing all that. And then uh, the director became very fond of me and said, what are you doing next? And I said, I don't know. And uh, he said, well, I'd like you to come on and, and work as an assistant editor. And, you know, and those, Man, again, wow. it was very loosey-goosey with the, the whole union thing. And I was like, sure, I don't know what an editor does, but, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll do it. And at the same time, John Dunning said to me, what are you doing next? You know, you want to keep working for us? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'd love to, but I've already told George that I'm going to work with him as an assistant editor. He went, well, great. That makes you more valuable to me. So you tell George we're paying you. And then when you're done with George, you got to come back here. And <laughs> so I was, Wow. And I came back and then another Sydney Picks film doing this various stuff. And then um, he and his partner, Andre Lake, said to me at, at one point, I think after the second or third film, he said, We'd like you to, you know, you're very smart and you know production now, especially so. We want you to run production for us. Jesus, man. So, yeah. And then uh, uh, one day shortly thereafter, I was head of production for Cinepex. And Andre Lin came into my office with this tall, gangly, buck-toothed guy and said, uh, this is, uh, he's going to be working with you. This is Ivan. You two guys here. Now you need to figure out something. We want to. You know, we want a horror movie. So find us a horror movie that we can make. <laughs> and it was Ivan Reitman. So um, Ivan and I sat there and spitballed. Do you know anybody that's got a horoscope? No. Do you know anyone? No. And they said, well, there is this guy out of uh, Toronto. <laughs> and I heard about him. He's in film school <clears throat> there. And uh, his name is David Cronenberg. And uh, let's call him and see what he's got. <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, he basically sent us what became Shivers. Right. And that was my first film as a producer. Was oh, wow. Shivers with Ivan and uh, with David Cronenberg. And uh, 
all very young. Uh, David was older by quite a bit than uh, either Ivan or I, and uh, we uh, we started in the business. We made Shivers and then Rabbit and the Brood. So yeah, David's daughter's uh, prepping a movie right now to direct. Oh, Caitlin. Yeah. <clears throat> no, she's gone from still photography to directing. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Very talented still photographer, and she's worked for me several times. Yeah. So. Cool. So it sort of sounds like you really didn't know that you were going to be a producer you just want to work in, in <laughs> you just want to work in the business yeah no exactly i mean like all film school guys i wanted to be a director right right and then i sort of saw what a director did and hmm, wasn't all that impressed but uh, the funny thing was in film school um uh, there was it was a select group there wasn't it wasn't a lot of people studying film in those days and Loyola was there were two film schools in canada one was ryerson where it was all a tech school. Uh, they were a technical college. They weren't even a, a university in those days. And you went there if you wanted to be a cameraman or learn about lighting or something like that. Okay. And, uh, but there was nothing creative about it. You didn't study movies. You didn't do all that. And then there was Loyola, and that was all creative. And quite frankly, on the technical side, it was a bit of a joke. So, okay. you know, there was this one Polish guy that sort of, you know, loaned you the cameras out of a little office and sort of taught you how to thread it. And then <laughs> you went on your way and you made these movies. So there was a group of us, I think probably seven or eight in the senior film program. And every month you made a movie. And if it was your month, you wrote and directed. Mm -hmm. And then every other month you did something else. You were the cameraman or you were the lighting guy or you did this or you did that. So it rotated. And um, the one job that nobody could get their head around because you had to get up early and, you know, everything was the producer who had to organize and arrange things. And I guess because of my hmm. father, I was always an early riser. You know, in high school, I went to a, a private boys' school in Montreal, and we didn't live there, so I had to make the train every morning at 7.30, which meant I had to get up at, you know, 6.30 and get dressed and wash and then walk to the damn train station, which was 20 minutes away, <laughs> got on the train and, and went into Montreal for, for school. Um, and uh, I was always an early riser. So because of that, I just out of sheer boredom would start producing everybody's movie <laughs> and making the calls. I need this, and I you know <clears throat> call the lab to get this or do that, and uh, so on, of all the seven or eight movies we made, there was one I was a producer, uh, the writer and director on, but on all of them I was doing the producer job, as well as other you know, other stuff. So that sort of uh, you know started me on that way. Right. So when you went to the other company. You've already had all this experience. Yeah. I mean, it's not the same experience because a <clears throat> right. lot of it is just figuring it out on your own. But it, it's all, all experience is good experience. Absolutely. So, yeah. And then, of course, it allowed me to get on to, to film sets and to see, um, you know, other producers or real producers. And some of them who were pretty good and some of them were like, just Frickin' awful. <laughs> you know, so. I think I've things never change, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, without going too far into it, I, uh, I had, 
worked with Harold Greenberg, who was head of yep. Astral Films, and uh, Harold um, had helped me out on a student film that we were making where we needed, you know, a lot of stuff. So I remember going into Harold's office and saying, okay, um, you know, I really would like your help on this uh, film and this. And he, you know, decided he liked me and he said, okay, what do you need? And I said, well, you know, we could use a little film. Kodak. Hey, Harold Greenberg. I got, I got this kid here. He needs some 16 millimeter film, you know, what else you need? And then, well, uh, camera. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Mel, you know, Mel who, who ran, you know, was called Cinevision at the time, but eventually came Panavision Canada. Give this kid a camera and that, you know, what else you need? So he basically in, in 20 minutes put my whole movie together and I was like so grateful. And at the end of the day, when I came back, I said, I'd like to show you the movie. And he said, I don't really want to see your movie. <laughs> wow. But, you know, thanks for saying thanks. And then I came in and I <laughs> brought him a bottle of very fine uh, whiskey, which my father had told him what to buy. And he, was, he said, nobody's ever done that, wow. given me a gift thanking me. And you're one of the good ones. I'll remember this. Wow. And eventually I ran Astral Films and produced Porky's for them. So I paid them back pretty good. <laughs> but uh, sure where it really happened was uh, I got a call uh, to help them because on uh, the apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, right. which was neither a Harold Greenberg or a Cinepix film. But they were having incredible trouble because their location manager, who was French-Canadian, had to go to all these Jewish places and talk them into letting them use their their locations, like Mo Walensky's and Gibby's and, you know, all of these places in Montreal. And there's always been a kind of tension between the, the Jewish community, especially the Orthodox Jewish community and the French Canadians in Montreal, and they don't really, didn't really trust. So these guys were getting nowhere. And uh, I got a call and said, can you help them out? So I said, well, what do you need? And then they said, well, we need to get into Mo Walensky's. We need to get into, you know, Moishe's. We need to... And so I said, well, I'm not Jewish, but I know somebody who's very Jewish. And I... Harold, <laughs> it's done. Can you help me out? And again, it was like, you know, I walk into Mo Walensky's lunch the next day and there he is. Mo says, hey, Harold says you're a good guy. Come here. What do you need? Oh, true. You know, that wow. type of thing, you know. And then, you know, uh, the Jewish resorts up in the Laurentians. Sure, whatever you want. Everything. So I basically did the locations for Duddy Kravitz. Uh in about a week was this, yeah wow did this movie set Richard Dreyfus oh yeah it was Richard Dreyfus first real yeah kind of, uh, leading role <clears throat> yeah and all that but the producers were less than stellar I would watch them and you know I'd be sitting there at my folding table because that's all I had in the producers home where they were based on the thing and when it came time to figure out where they were to do what was called a cost report I eventually found out they put all the bills that had to be paid on the floor in big <laughs> piles, and they, that's how they figured out where they were. And I thought, this is not a very good idea. And they kept, you know, running into trouble with, you know, burning locations and stuff like that. And I was getting mad because I had found these locations for them. Right. And, uh, 
you know, there was one instance where we were shooting in a very, very well-known Jewish cemetery. And the production manager was too cheap, uh, and the producer didn't say anything, to buy a headstone or get a fake headstone made. So they decided, well, what we're going to do is we're going to change the name on a real headstone by putting a plaque over it. So the prop guy, you know, made this plaque up that said, you know, uh, uh, Dreyfus, and they stuck it with super glue or something to the headstone. And then, of course, at the end of the day, when everybody's finished shooting, they all took off and nobody took the thing oh, wow. off. So it was only when Mrs. <clears throat> Rabinovitz or whoever, who was really had her hubby buried there, came out on Yom Kippur and looked and she couldn't find her husband. And there was some guy called Dreyfus in her place. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I got a frantic call from the cemetery. What the hell? Because I had arranged for the sure. cemetery. Holy crap. And so I called up and, uh, you know, <clears throat> the pitcher's long wrapped and everything else. And so the production manager climbed over the wall at night with a cold chisel and a, and a buddy and they defaced the stone trying to get the damn oh my god thing off and they ended up i forget what the damage is but they ended up buying a headstone paying mrs rabinovich or whoever she was a bunch of money to not sue them and uh you so know, it would have been better just to build the headstone yeah, yeah. <laughs> pay the money first which also taught me to be, you know, don't be penny wise and pound foolish. Right. So. Wicked. It's, it's interesting that, you know, you come up through the ranks of driver and, and made those small steps. Mm -hmm. So you at least understand the departments below you. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, that's the way, <clears throat> to me, I always thought you better know what they're, if you're going to try and tell these guys what to do, you better know what their job is. So, you know, I worked as a prop guy. I worked as a location manager, as I said. I, you know, I worked as an assistant cameraman. Uh, I had been trained as a sound man. Actually, in film school, my, the one that Harold helped me put together, that film won the, uh, the Canadian Student Film Award. And the prize wow. was a job at the National Film Board. Okay which everybody was like, oh, my God. They, you know, Not only is it the National Film Board, one of the few places actually making movies in Canada, but it was a government job. So you you know, you know, could retire there. You could get a pension. So people were like, oh, my God, you got the brass ring. And Incredible. I got in there, and again, they didn't know what to do with me. I was some kid that won a prize. <laughs> but so, that you must have been yeah. stoked. Well, I was stoked that I won the prize. Yeah. It was like, okay, I get paid. <laughs> and I, and they decided, okay, well, here, go see this guy, Len Green, who was a very nice man. He ran the sound department. So he goes, well, all right, I'm going to teach you how to be a sound man. So I was a location sound recorder for, you know, one summer on a National Film Board documentary, which was kind of cool because it involved an incredible amount of traveling. It was like every two days we were in a different city in Canada, right across the country. But I was recording sound and, you know, I learned how to record sound, but I hated it. That's not what I wanted to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, on this show, I got to Calgary where a couple of my, uh, my friends from school were there and they had just gotten jobs as gophers for this American TV show, uh, Western. And uh, we had gone out drinking 
the night before. And uh, they said, well, we got to go to bed because we got to get up early. We drive to Banff, or not Banff, uh, uh, Canmore, on the way <coughs> Canmore. to Banff. And uh, that's where we're shooting. So uh, I went because I, I had an off day with the film board thing. So I went to bed and my phone rings and it's, you know, 6.30 in the morning. I say, do you have your, your sound gear with you? I said, well, of course. What are you talking about? So they said, well, we got a problem here because the sound man and his boom man were driving to Canmore and they were a terrible auto wreck. And they're being, they're in the hospital and nobody can record sound. And it's going to take two days to get a sound crew up here from Hollywood. Because they were in Calgary, there's nobody. So I guess they could have gotten from uh, Vancouver, but even that would have taken a sure. day or two. So it was like, can you jump in your car and come out here with your sound stuff and record sound for these guys? So I thought, okay, sure. And I called up the producer of the film board thing and said, I'm doing this so you know. And he said, well, okay, fine, as long as you're here the next day and whatever we start shooting. And I went out there and I recorded sound on this thing this uh tv movie that was a western uh man and it was like hey you know and then they were like hey we can't get anybody tomorrow can you stay tomorrow <laughs> and then i had to call the film board guy and go hey you know can you? so yeah for two days i did sound on this uh western it was kind of fun but uh you know which leads to more stuff but again when i got back at the end of this show I went in and I quit the film board and everybody was like you did what? Mm. You quit the job of a lifetime? And then you know of course history being what it was if I had stayed with the film board right? I'd probably be retired about six, seven years ago and you know on my pension and you know mm. Yeah but you wouldn't have had as much fun Oh no No so Not even close Yeah That's incredible So as I tell people I've been incredibly lucky by being in the right place at the right time. So, did you put yourself there though? I mean, is it how much is it luck and how much is it you know, you and your mind and the way you work? I don't know. I mean, you know, for the longest time I always go, boy, if these guys figure out I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And of yeah. course, being a film producer at the ripe old age of 22. Yeah. And all these old grizzled guys, especially in Montreal, these old grizzled French Canadian guys are like taking orders from me. And, uh, you know, you tend to go the other way. You become too tough. Hmm. So, um, you know, it, it's quite interesting. In, in Montreal, my reputation is completely different than my reputation in Ontario or Vancouver or. Is Hollywood. that right? Oh, yeah. You no, know, in Montreal. I was a son of a bitch, uh, you know, because I sort of thought I had to be. Oh, I see. And um, so they're very tough. And, uh, you know, it's funny when I go back to Montreal, I, it happened recently on uh, on Death of a Ladies Man. We were shooting in Montreal and a lot of the older guys on the crew who had known me from years and years, they also knew that I spoke French. So they would, uh, you know, I'd be on on the set and I'd hear some one of the crew guy, oh, that's him, that's Don Carvey, that son of a bitch, right? Okay, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, <laughs> don't, don't, he speaks French. You know? I just laugh. So, yeah. That's brilliant. I guess it's all a part of the game. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, even I certainly mellowed after I had kids. If, you, you know, uh, 
you sort of, uh, uh, to me, was, I still remember watching, you know, a film crew after having Brendan and, and Caitlin and Aaron and going, they're all, they're just a bunch of kids having fun. You mm, know? Totally. And you realize, <laughs> just cool it, you know, it'll get done in mm. its own way. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't tolerate incompetence. Of course not. Or people being venal or whatever. But, you know, film crews uh, are meant to have fun. <clears throat> it's <clears throat> a tough job. It's hard work. and um, It's a child's dream, I suppose, making yeah. movies, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, uh, what was it? I think Spielberg said that a movie uh, crew is like the best, you know, erector set he ever had, you know. So <laughs> that type of thing. So, yeah, it's... Uh, so over the years, I've mellowed. Okay. Okay. But, uh, you know, coming up as a, uh, a film producer uh, very early on. Uh, I'm sure it was invaluable. Out. It got it got you what you needed to be here and mellow today. Oh, yeah. And, but that, that and, comes with experience. Yeah. And it's also knowing what people do. I mean, that's the thing that, uh, you know, I never, uh, you know, when I was the first as a, a film producer, you did everything, you know. Um, it was only later that when the agents started becoming, and, you know, who had no idea what a film, you know, how to f produce a movie was, they needed somebody to produce them because they wanted to have that, that kind of control. So they started with this whole thing about a line producer. And uh, the, my first experience with that was... Uh, you know, I had done a movie, a couple of movies with Columbia and uh, with Ivan. And uh, Ivan was going off to do, we, you know, had split up by that time. And he was going off to do Ghostbusters. So Columbia said, well, you're not going with Ivan. I said, no. And they said, well, would you, we had a, a problem here in a show where the leading actress and the producer are not getting along together. Uh, and the director has basically said he wants to ban the producer, which is a big problem. So we need somebody that can work with this producer. And uh, I said, well, who's the producer? And they told me it was a guy called Marty Ransohoff. And Marty was one of the great producers. He had, you know, started filmways. He had done all these, you know, like, uh, Beverly Hillbillies and Mr. Ed and Petticoat Junction and all of this and then segued into feature films and had done things like the Americanization of Emily, Ice Station Zebra. I was like, my God, this guy's a legend. Yeah, I'm doing that right now. You know, <laughs> I said, yeah, I guess. And I said, you know, uh, well, I got to meet him. They said, oh, I said, well, doesn't he want to meet me? Well, he does, but, you know, that's the problem, is that Marty's Marty. And <laughs> it, it was one of these things. Marty always had, he had no break in his mouth. And whatever he was thinking came out. And he had gotten himself in trouble by, he was in a wardrobe fitting with uh, Glenn Close and Ann Roth, who had designed the costumes, and it was a picture called Jagged Edge. And uh, Ann had said... Uh, so Marty, what do you think? Doesn't she look gorgeous? And Marty said, all these costumes make her ass look fat. Oh, geez. Well, that was it. And Glenn was like, this guy, blah, blah, blah. <coughs> he thinks my ass is fat. I'm not going to do this. I'm that, blah, 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 blah. And uh, 
So uh, all of a sudden, uh, he was decided to be persona non grata, and he had fought with the studio, and eventually compromised that he would hire somebody. And I went in and I met with him, and uh, I realized that this is what this guy's all about. But he's still a genius, and uh, I agreed to do it. And it was always interesting, you know. He'd call me every morning and just ramble, 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 and I'd be like shaving in the, you know, the stuff. <laughs> and, and you know, uh, and just doing it, and realize that he didn't want to respond. He just wanted to unload, and uh, so it, it led to a really interesting uh, situation. But uh, so you became his on-set guy, his uh, eyes and ears, you know, which okay. then led to. Um, you know, doing shows uh, kind of as a hired gun. Uh, and uh, I did a number of shows like that. And it was also at a good time because all of a sudden I had these kids and the the life of an independent producer is pretty precarious, no matter how good you are. And, you know, by this time I'd already made meatballs, I'd already made porkies, I'd, you know, all of those sort of things. But it's, you know, you still, you're only as good as your last film. Mm -hmm. So... I had people offering to pay me to produce movies for them because they didn't exactly know what they were doing or they were doing so much. Like in the case of, all of a sudden, I, I produced six, seven movies with uh, Miramax, the Weinsteins. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, because they were busy doing their stuff and they didn't hire people that would fight with them, they hired people that would work with them. So uh, they didn't like a lot of the producers. So they would go out and they'd find the, the project and the director and the writer. And then, okay, you're going to do this. We're going to, you know, put you here. And so I did all these shows with them and it was great. I mean, I didn't have to raise the money. I didn't have to hire the, you know, put up with the, the creative things. That was all, you know, Harvey. And uh, I just basically made sure the, you know, the train ran on time. So... That was kind of my job. And I got paid a lot of money to do that. I was like, this is great. Yeah, well, this is <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I did that for a number of years until actually the kids were, you know, in high school. And then I said, okay, I got to be making my own stuff again. So if, there was a period there of about, you know, let's say 12 years where I was pretty much a hired gun. But the other thing it allowed me to do was it brought I brought Hollywood to Canada. Yes, you did. So I was the first guy to bring major uh, Hollywood movies on a regular basis to Toronto and Montreal and to a lesser extent Vancouver. There had always been you know movies going on here, like Robert Altman especially. He loved Canada, and he he must have shot about six movies in Canada himself. You know, some better known than others, but um, very few um, directors would consider Canada at all. And uh, to a lot of them, it was a purgatory. You know, it's like, mm. oh, God, they don't really like my movies, so they're going to send me to Canada where it's cheap, you know. But that wasn't always the case. And I remember, you know, one of the Miramax ones that they, they brought me and said, hey, we've got this great script. These two actors wrote it. They're in the movie. Um and they want to do it, but we can't get it. They want to shoot it in Boston, um, but they can't, uh, you know, we can't afford to do it in Boston. The Teamsters are too tough and the, the crews are too big and all of this. Can you show them that you can do this up in Toronto? And I said, absolutely. The movie was Goodwill Hunting. 
And I, oh my God. I'm actually from Boston. Right. Yeah. So I knew. So when I met Matt and Ben, they got off of the plane and they were like, this is going to be a disaster. Toronto's not Boston. I said, so uh, what do you guys want to see first? You want to see the swan boats? You want to see the commons? Or would you like to see uh, Harvard? And they're like, what? Interesting. I said, yeah, come on, let's go. I said, let's go to Harvard first, because that's where most of this stuff goes. And the University of Toronto is designed on Harvard. Sure With is. a couple of <clears throat> everything else. So they were like, oh, my God. And uh, they said, they'll let us shoot here? Because Harvard wouldn't let them shoot there. I said, sure. As long as you don't call it the University of Toronto, they don't care. So... Um, and then I took them to Hyde Park and showed them the swan boats. They were like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. So I said, we also got duck boats. Do you want to go see the duck boats? No, 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 that's not in the movie. It's fine. And we ended up shooting the movie almost entirely in Toronto. Uh, and the thing that really, you know, we shot for a few days in Southie, which was absolutely unnecessary as far as I was concerned. But they're Southie boys. Right. So, you know. And uh, so I think we shot three or four days. So at the when they won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay, they got up there and was like, thank you, South Boston. And I went, yeah, thank you, South Boston, for costing us twice as much as Toronto for three days. And anyway. Did they not better. thank no. coming to Toronto? No. no. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. We have to make a call. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> but, uh, you know, and nobody can tell that it's Toronto. No. Not at all. I, I, I made so. Yeah, it's like, you know, when I did Chicago, we shot one day in Chicago with second unit. Everything else was Toronto. Now, Chicago, did you not take that to Winnipeg? No. Somebody. All Toronto. It's crazy. Oh, wow. Okay. Not, a, not a day in Winnipeg. Yeah, no, I, okay, so I got some information wrong because I, I, SARS hit that at that time. No. Is that SARS was after that. As a matter of fact, the movie I did in SAR during SARS was Resident Evil Two. Okay. And we were the only film shooting in Ontario at that time that would take a chance with SARS. And uh, oh wow, yeah. And I guess I mean, thankfully, because it ended up being massive. Mm. Those movies, yeah. um, in terms of the success of Resident Evil. Uh, how many did you do? Six. Six. Are yeah. th is, is I mean I mean is it is it um. Did they did did it fly uh, uh, bigger than uh, I mean I guess the better question is what is really the most successful film that you've made to date or series? Well, uh, successful film would still probably be Porky's. Okay. I mean, if you're talking yeah. about worldwide box office. Yeah, price. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so that one. I mean, the Resident Evil's cumulative. Yeah, sure. Definitely, that's the most successful series of films. Okay. Um, you know, and uh, each one got... The, the big thing with uh, Resident Evil was that each one was bigger than the last mm -hmm. until we got to five and six, and then it petered out. Did you happen to see the most uh, the latest Resident Evil film? What, do you mean the series? No, what's what's that thing? No, it was like it was the it was a reboot. It was a, it was it was a reboot. They shot it in Sudbury. Oh, oh, I heard about. Yeah, no, no, no. I parted <laughs> ways with, you know, when Paul Anderson and Jeremy Bolt, who brought me in on the first one, uh, you know, 
left, I was like, well, that's, I'm done too. Yeah, I don't so, think it yeah. had anything to do with the original. No, I don't no, think it. There was not no. original cast. I don't think <clears throat> you know, no. she wasn't no. in it. And no. All that. No. Uh-uh. No, yeah. well, there's really in, no reason to. Yeah, the original film, first one was being shot in Berlin, um, but it's all based in Raccoon City, which was always based on Toronto. The Japanese uh, game guys uh, had always based Raccoon City on stock footage they'd seen of really Toronto. They thought, oh, this looks cool. Let's make it here. So Toronto was the stand-in for Raccoon City in the video games. So uh, anyway, wow. when they mm. were making uh, the first one, um, they wanted to come to Toronto for some exteriors and uh, interiors and hospital stuff and everything else because that didn't, they couldn't find that stuff in Berlin that looked American. Mm-hmm. So I got a call to meet with them and, and help them and I got involved and then, this, then I co-produced the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. And then on the 6th, uh, because I was done in South Africa, um, we, uh, I basically arranged all of the post-production, the visual effects and things like that. So I was kind of a, almost a post-producer when you get right down to it. I went on the set hmm. once, so that was it. So Interesting. Yeah. But everyone up until 5 did better than the last one, yeah. Well, you were getting a bigger audience. It, yeah. The word of mouth got out there. And, mm-hmm. and they were very big, complicated movies. So, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned about winning the prize back in school. Um, today, we have so many prizes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Andrew and I were discussing this earlier today. Um, you know, growing up, there was the Oscars and the Grammys and the Emmys and... Golden Globes. Gold, well, the Golden Globes even no, that's became something. Too. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and then, of, of course, the Toronto Film Festival and Cannes, and you have different prizes. <clears throat> In your opinion, what do you think the most coveted uh, prize is in the film business today? Oh, still the Oscar. Still the Oscar? Mm-hmm. It is. Okay. Yeah. Always. Which you have one of? Yes, for Chicago. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the big thing that's exploded, uh, over the years is film festivals. Mm-hmm. They, um, I mean, there was con and I think there was Venice, uh, when I was, uh, coming up through the ranks and I remember going to con the first time because con also had a market, which Venice didn't have. And of course we would go Ivan or I would go and try and pitch these various movies and try and sell them and whatever. Because invariably we had, you know, we had the U.S. rights, or definitely all the Canadian rights. They were all Cinepix. And then uh, Cinepix sold off everything else to foreign. So that was all part of the financing plan. And we would go and pitch the various foreign buyers and things like that at Con. Um, but there were no other festivals that I remember. There was, the Mo- Montreal had an international film festival but it was fairly provincial. It eventually grew bigger, but then it was overtaken by, by TIFF. And over the years, various other places, you know, started having festivals. And actually, when Toronto started, it wasn't called Toronto International Film Festival. It was called the Festival of Festivals. Oh, I remember that. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and it was the brainchild of three guys here 
and they decided that they would do a festival that basically would take the best from all these other festivals and put them all together and, and show these movies. And they never gave awards. There was no award at TIFF, and there still really isn't. There now is the, you know, you have the audience award, and uh, you have various and sundry, uh, you know, special awards for this or recognition of that. But TIFF's not a competitive festival. Uh, like Con or Venice or, you know, so many mm. of them now, they give mm. out prizes. But, uh, you know, that's how Toronto started. And then because it became so valuable to the major studios as a launching point for the Academy Awards more than anything else, because it was in the fall, so they would generate a lot of heat going into the uh, what they called the award season, which mm. was basically for the Oscars. So, yeah, that's where TIFF all started from. And TIFF is huge now. Oh, gigantic. Yeah, and, you know, more and more popular with the studios and the actors and, and all of that. But so, so, Which brings me again to something when I started. You couldn't get directors up here uh, to do their movies, you know, without a stick of dynamite. They just thought they were being sent to Siberia. <laughs> and that's what I did was I brought a lot of these directors up and I showed them that they could make a really good movie and that, you know, they didn't have the bullshit with the unions. They didn't have, you know, they were far enough away from the studio that they would leave them alone. So it became very attractive to start shooting in Canada. And the younger directors who came after, who did the, the TV stuff and whatever, they didn't know that they were supposed to hate it here. <laughs> <laughs> so they liked it. And, uh, they continued to uh, say, hey, my next movie, I'll go to Canada. Yeah, yeah, I had a good time there. So, you know, it's not all me. It's the crews and, and everybody sure. else working up here. And the city was always welcoming. And I know, you know, from I'd be in a restaurant with, you know, big movie stars and stuff. And and people would, you know, very shyly look over. And I, but nobody would approach them. Nobody would pester them for autographs or stuff like that. A few well, occasionally, invariably, turned out to be American tourists who would pester <laughs> the movie stars. And um, so the stars really enjoyed kind of... The anonymity of being in yeah, Canada. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So, it's very good. So that sort of uh, happened. Uh, but yeah, it's one of the things I'm most proud of is, is starting the stampede to canada and uh well yeah. did you f ever feel a need to have to go down to la and, and oh. deal down there oh yeah i imagine sure. oh no right after meatballs ivan and i both were like okay let's get out of here we ought to go to where the action is right right and yeah. we both said okay strike while the iron's hot we had both heard people oh my god you guys come down here we're gonna work with you it's gonna be great and it was funny we <laughs> both reminisced and, you know, Ivan unfortunately died about uh, a year ago. Um, that when we got down there, it was like, after being told that we were like stars, you're going to be here. And like the phone wouldn't ring for two years. It took us almost two years to figure out Los Angeles, where, as I tell people, it's the only place on earth you can die of encouragement. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is great. You go into a meeting at a studio and everybody's like, this is terrific. Yeah, we're going to work with you guys. This is going to be great. We're going to, you know, blah, blah. And then you get home and it's like crickets. And it finally, you know, <laughs> to me, I realized you don't have a deal unless you get home and there's a phone call 
from studio business affairs waiting for you. Then you got a deal. But other than that, it's all bullshit. You know, and nobody says no in LA. It's all great blowing smoke up your ass. We're going to be this. We're going to be that. And then, uh-uh. no. uh-huh. you know, the only time you got a deal is when you got a deal. So, so how do you know the difference when you're in there? You don't. You don't. So you, you guys came off of meatballs mm-hmm. and you came down there yep. and you just stalled. Yeah, stalled. It was like we took me and not that we were taking meetings together, but, you know, he was taking his meetings. I was taking my meetings. We we're still working on stuff and, you know, like nothing happened. So it was a successful film. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Ivan, his next film was Animal House, but you know, he wanted to direct Animal House because he had directed Meatballs. Yeah. No, nobody would let him direct it. And it wasn't until he brought other producers on and, you know, put it all together that he got Animal House made. And that gave him the clout going forward to insist on, you know, that he was going to direct this stuff. Absolutely. So, you know, whatever. And then, you know, I mean, I did a few things. I even came back to uh, Montreal for Harold Greenberg and thing. And, you know, and then my next Hollywood movie was... Porky's, which gave me the clout. Right. So, is LA still the same hotspot it always was? It's where the business is. Yeah. All the decisions are made. You know, and it's like you always had to be there because you've got meetings happening. I mean, now of course, is nobody goes to their offices anymore. It's just ridiculous ever since COVID. But prior to that, you had to live in LA, and that's why I've always had a a, a home in Los Angeles and I spent uh, as much time there as uh, I needed you know and then I invariably made all my movies in Canada or somewhere around the world or, or whatever but yeah no it's, it's always been an important place to have your base because if you're not there people forget about you yeah yeah absolutely even so- actors you know they they go well I'm a big movie star now I don't need to live well you do because you got to have a meeting and you got to do this and all of that. Now, again, after COVID, so much is virtual. Uh, I think that's really changed the business. I mean, and you know, casting. Do you think it'll stay that way? Uh, you know, I think so, because I haven't been in a, a casting room, uh, I think, in almost seven years. It's been, everything is uh, done on tape. Everything's, you know, actors are self-taping or, you know, their agents are taping and then sending in. And you don't meet the actors until you hire them type of thing. You know, sometimes on a callback, you'll you'll meet yeah. or whatever. But uh, yeah. I was going to say that personal thing that <clears throat> there's a, yeah. a rapport that you get physically. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and directors will, you know, sometimes do it more than others. Like Unlucky uh, Day, Roger insisted on having... Uh, real auditions and i'd sit in every now and then but it was like you know this it's so much more efficient to do this well it's i mean an actor too can is, yeah. he can sit or he, he or she can sit around all day yeah and 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 continue to do the self-tape until they got it right um yeah but uh a lot of them i i still remember at a conference uh actor had this is 10 15 years ago and they brought me in and uh they were talking about the casting process, which in those days was you met the actors. And, you know, if you're doing a casting thing, it was like, 
every five or 10 minutes, a different actor would come into the room and, and whatever, you know, and in those days we used to all smoke and uh, the rooms were all small and stuffy and full of smoke. And the actors were saying to me, you know, you guys are really disrespectful and, you know, I don't get my attention or, you, you know, barely anybody thanks me after this. And I said, let me tell you, you probably came in after I've been in that little stinky airless room for three days, seeing an actor every 10 minutes and you come in and I can tell you're not right. And if you don't convince me I'm wrong in the first minute, I'm... We're not working together. You know, it's like... And it's not that we don't like you. It's just you're not it. And all we want to do is get the hell out of that damn room. <laughs> so if you come in and you're it, that's one more check mark to me getting out of that damn room. If you're not it, then I got to see somebody else. So it, it goes mm -hmm. on like that. So it's like nothing personal, buddy. All we want to do is get out of that room. And if you're not helping us get out of that room, yeah, you know, we tend to lose mm. it after three days. So makes sense. Oh, yeah. Okay. You know, beginning of a casting session, it's like, oh, well, <clears throat> tell us a little about yourself and all this. And, you know, after three days, it's like, okay, fine. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to hear it another way? Get no, out. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. That's hilarious. Now, that because uh, things are kind of convenient now with the online and all that mm -hmm. that kind of goes back to uh film versus digital has has i mean has has the integrity kind of uh thinned out at all integrity no well, i don't know if that's the, the right word but maybe quality um, yeah. quality maybe mm -hmm. no no i mean look i thought i would be long gone i've hung up my boots you know um before i would shoot anything digital yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, right. Boom. Now it's like you can't even buy film anymore. Right. So it's no, it's all digital. And it's like the whole thing with, you know, well, I have vinyl. You have vinyl. What are you crazy when you can have a CD, you know, or uh, something, an MP3. What it hmm. most people cannot tell the difference. Right. And that's audio. And it's one of your finer senses. So. Uh, you know, when digital first was coming out on film, um, I'd look and I'd go, oh, that looks funny. You know, no, that looks like video. You know, I could tell video from film. Video, I can't tell anymore. And it's not that my eyes have become less. It's just video or, you know, digital has become that much better. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at a film like Top Gun Maverick. You think there's a piece of film in there? Nowhere. It's astonishing what they can do. And of course, with visual effects, more and more, you know, even, you know, 10, 15 years ago, visual effects were all digital. So, you know, you'd always have that divide and it was always, you know, making the film fit with the digital and all of that. And, and the more visual effects you had, the less important film became. So, uh, no, I don't, I don't see it. I'm astonished at how fast it's gone. And, you know, what you can do now. I mean, frankly, anything you can think of. That's right. You can do. Yeah. So. You but you, do you feel that the, the quality of films has, has gone down a smidgen? Not, not some of the big ones because they take time and money mm -hmm. to do it. Um, and what I'm getting at is everybody can make a movie now. You can make a movie yeah. on your iPhone and yeah. edit it on your 
and people have exactly yeah Yeah. absolutely but the thing is back years ago when you had film you know guys would go outside of the studio to have a cigarette while they reload the camera well Mm. now we're just doing this so there's no there's no time so the director had to do a well, he had to think about what he was going to shoot because he had a... Yeah, that is that is definitely. The young directors coming up. I mean, I, I can remember the old days with a director when, you know, if you wanted another take, you know, I knew exactly how much a foot of film cost and a, a, to, for the film, for the processing and the printing. And I'd sit there and go, 70 cents, 70 cents, 70 cents, 70 cents. And he'd go, I got it, I got it. Well, now, they don't care. They just right. burn it, and then they erase it. You know? See, that's what I mean. So somebody had to come in with a, yeah. with a shooting ratio, and if he, mm-hmm. if he screws up, he doesn't have film for the last three days of his schedule. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, for sure. That's definitely changed. And especially the young filmmakers who come out of like the commercial world or you know, the film school where there, there's no discipline. So um, Same with editing. You'd have to think about it before you cut that film. Today we just go, oh, never mind. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, I because I was a, <clears throat> you know an assistant editor and the hot splicing and you know the tape and all of that. It's and rind, you know winding the reels and all of that. Even you know as a projectionist, you know you had to do it. And then you had to hit the changeover mark right in the the time. Well, now it's just you take a it's a disc a disc. A, it's all there. So, yeah, it's not even a disc. Some of these theaters are getting it directly from satellite. Right. And just it downloads into the oh, projectors and off they go. Or, you know, it's like, you know, if, they, if the movie doesn't perform, <clears throat> here's another movie. 100%. Yeah, so. But I just is, thought that the, yeah. the thought process that went into making movies, making that edit, well, it, it definitely is. And it's really affected from uh, the director's side more than anything else. And, of course, the producer still has to go, what, you know, what do you need 39 takes for? What are you getting here that's that much different? Um, you know, and a lot of actors will also go, come on, what do you want that's different? You know, and I came up, you know, through the ranks, and I was very lucky to work with people like Norman Jewison, and Sidney Lumet and Franklin Shafter and you know these guys, man, <clears throat> you know, they began at eight, ended at five. I remember with Franklin Shafter, man, oh man, I could see that five minutes to five, and his hand went up. Prop man slapped a scotch in his hand. <laughs> and you go, thank you, we're good, wrap. I, love, and then I we, love that guy. <laughs> we would go to dailies. Dailies were maybe half an hour, <clears throat> and then you would go off and have dinner and whatever, you know, and. Sidney Lumet was like that. He was, you know. That's incredible. You know, actors go, Sidney, I'd like one more. No, I got it. Or he'd stop the take in the middle and go, okay, I'm fine. <laughs> Let's move on to this. And people were like, what? You, you didn't have a full cup. I got what I needed. Right. And what, what they, changed? What? They cut it in their head. They knew what to do it. Sure. These young guys right out of film school or, or whatever, they have no idea, quite frankly, what they're doing. They... They dream of, you know, crazy things, and then that's what they want to get. And then they get it, and, uh, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I'm not saying all of them are like that. Right. Um, but and, and some guys who are known for being just pains in the ass and shooting incredible amounts of footage and take after take after take are also some pretty amazing directors. So, you know, 
Yeah. There's a scale, but. Well, I remember when I was a younger stuntman, I'd go to work and directors, for the most part, were incredibly prepared. Mm. And I go to work now. I'll, yeah. A lot of stuff. Isn't yeah, sometimes they don't even have a storyboard or something. Like I, I don't know. You know? Well, but they're also, <clears throat> especially as, <clears throat> for stunt guys, Yeah, those guys are dangerous because they don't understand what they can and can't do. Mm-hmm. So they just think, oh, well, yeah. Well, he puts his life on the line. So, you know, I don't need to rehearse it properly or I don't need this or, you know, and off they go. So, yeah, no, I'm. that's one of the things. I've made a lot of movies with a lot of stunts and a lot of, and, you know, that's one of the things that's really important to me is I don't ever want to hurt somebody. Absolutely. On a film. So it's like, I don't care how good the film is. It's not worth hurting somebody badly or killing somebody. Right. Which we've yeah. seen a lot of. Oh, oh yeah. Every, every stunt guy's going to get some bumps and bruises, but oh, absolutely, yeah. that's our job. But yeah. you're, I, I respect that. Thank you. That's awesome. Big time. It has to be. Yeah. I mean, it's a movie. You know, it's not life or death. But politics seems to have played uh, a big role these days. Um, has it changed? Has politics play play a role? Uh, how do you mean politics? I mean, there's always going to be that hierarchy thing, you know. The director yeah. wants this, the producer wants that, but you're not talking Democrat, Republican. No, certainly not. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe... Uh, there's always a, a push, you know, like directors always want more and, you know, producers are happy to give them more as long as it's within reason and mm-hmm. not making them look bad. So, you know, I have no problem uh, horse trading, as I call it. You know, I do that a lot with all my directors and, you know, some of the best directors is like, you know, I'd love to give you that technocrane, but. You know, we're completely out of money. But if you could cut an hour on a Friday, I can probably get you that technic rain. And then they're like, okay, you know. And the ones that play ball that, you know, say what they mean and go, okay, I will try and do that, then it's wonderful. You know, and I've worked with some tough directors and, you know, guys like Rennie Harlan, everybody's like, oh, he's going to kill you. No, I got along great with him. Hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, God, who else? some incredibly, you know, profligate directors that, uh, you know, people warn me, oh, you're, this is going to be a bad, and somehow we get along. So, yeah, I, I can only remember one really bad experience with a director. And, um, you know, the guy barely worked again after that, but it is what it is. Um, you know, I read... If you're respectful of each other's job, and that's really what the politics is. If yeah, it's a two-way yeah, process. If you're respectful of it, and you both realize you're trying to make, you know, a a good film, doesn't behoove anybody to make uh, a bad movie. And as I've said, people say, "Well, you're you're always really good at bringing things in on budget." And I said, "Yeah, but that's not my primary thing. I don't want to go crazy over budget because that's not good either." But you know, uh, nobody thanks you to bring them a bad movie and you give them change so you know if you make a budget and the budget is realistic and everybody's on the same page then you make the movie pretty much for the budget or within the contingency or something you know um but when somebody comes in and just says well fuck it i don't care uh invariably you end up making a piece of shit so you know 
Yeah. And well, you paid a lot of money for that piece of shit. So. <clears throat> yeah, why do it? Yeah, no, exactly. So very cool. What about TV? TV's changing. Well, Big time. Yeah. yeah. It's it used to be people, you know, in their feature films, they look down their noses at TV. And um, you know, TV to me was always, you know, sitcoms or you know, the crime of the week that got solved within an hour. And I was like, eh, <laughs> I didn't watch that shit. I didn't yeah. care about it. I didn't want to do it. And it really wasn't uh, until um, I was making a movie. Um, I still remember. I was probably out here in Cambridge because it was on Silent Hill 2 where um, uh, Kit Harrington, who was in the movie, and Sean Bean, who was in the movie as well as the first one, yeah, said to me, "Hey, we've just been working on this thing in Ireland um, called Game of Thrones, and it's on now. You got to see this. This is amazing." And I was like, "TV, fuck, you know." Even though yeah, it was HBO, right. I was like, "Yeah." So I was like, and I think it was Sean. He was shooting here in Cambridge, and he said, "I'm leaving in three days, and you still haven't watched Game of Thrones. I, you got to watch it before I go." And I said, "Well, I got it recorded." So anyway, I did. I watched the first episode and I was like, "Holy shit!" And then I watched the second yeah. episode and I went, "Wow!" Yeah. And I went, "Oh, wait a minute! I get this. This is like a big movie, you yeah. know, long movie." So, to me, that was what we called in those days long form. So that I understood. I knew how to make that kind of stuff. So that's when I started looking into it, and then I got into television, and we started the television side and. You know, we, we did pretty well. And, uh, you know, uh, a case in point would be, you know, I made a movie called The Mortal Instruments, which mm -hmm. is based on a series of best-selling young adult books. They were really dense. Each one of these books was about 400, 450 pages. And all these characters and these stories and different types of, you know, you had vampires and werewolves and this and that, all these different things. And when we made Mortal Instruments... Um, fan base who loved these books were like well what about that well what about that well, mm -hmm. well the movie would have been three and a half hours long you know so we made the first one it did reasonably well and we were all set to do the second we were actually in pre-production on the second when you know our because of how the independent films are financed we had a studio deal we had various uh, you know foreign distributors and some of our foreign distributors started falling out going, no, the, your, your audience isn't going to be there for the second one. So I said, okay. So we very reluctantly pulled the plug. And I remember saying, hey, you know, one, part of the problem is these books are so dense that they should be, it should be almost like a, a long form miniseries like Game of Thrones or, or whatever. And then we did it as Shadowhunters. And okay. you know, we did four seasons um, and, uh, you know, it basically hit all the books. So, yeah, I mean, there's television that way is now quite amazing. So mm -hmm. and I think a lot of it is because of Game of Thrones, um, you know, even things like Yellowstone. When you look at it, you're telling a big, sweeping, epic family drama. So you're not trying to do it in 90 minutes or 110 minutes you're able to do it over a season of, you know, 10 one hours or 13 one hours. Or People seem to love an abundance of stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, they like handfuls of candy. So. Well, the other thing, of course, is that what Netflix did was the whole idea 
is that they're all there. So when you start watching, you're not waiting for every Thursday night at eight. Right. You can you watch can it at your leisure. Binge yeah. It. Yeah. Was, you know, binge came out. And actually some of the stuff has now gone back to where you can't binge it and it's pissing people off. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, they're like, well, I want to see the next episode of Lord of the Rings, but, you know, it's only Thursdays. It's, you know, blah, blah. <laughs> so there are, um, there are issues like that, but, uh, you know, Netflix really broke the mold with what they were doing and uh, changed how people watch and consume, uh, you know, drama, comedy, whatever. So, yeah. I mean, even personally, I think the last movie I actually sat down and watched was Shawshank Redemption, just because it's, <laughs> it's a classic that I love. Yeah. Other than that, I, I don't really catch movies the same way I used to. Mm. I, I, but I love, I love binging. Yeah. No, yeah, no, we love binging too. But uh, to me now, uh, the movies I reserve for, you know, big spectacles. So when I think of totally. what I, you know, the last James Bond, I saw Maverick, I saw Batman, I saw, you know. So I'll go out for the, if I'm going to go see something that's laden with special effects or something, I, I got to see it in a movie theater. Right. But Absolutely. When I was a young producer, I would, you know, I'd see five movies a week. If I wasn't yeah, shooting, yeah, just at, at the movie theater because I had to, and anything that was doing well, I had to see. Why is this doing so well? So I would go see it, and sometimes go see it twice if I didn't quite understand why, you know. So um, that was all part of my educational process, and uh, you know, like in film school, we saw all these old movies, and uh, <laughs> I. One of my favorite things is as the teaching assistant for the film history class, part of my job was to take tickets at the door because the film, the students would get in free, but to try and help out a little bit, we'd sell tickets. And people would come by and go, oh, what are you showing? And I'd say, well, you know, it's uh, Charlie Chaplin and uh, the Gold Rush. Oh, really? And they'd sort of poke through the porthole and go, Oh, it's a black and white. Forget <laughs> it. You know, off they go. And I was like, this is genius. You got to see, you know. So, uh, yeah. But, um, you know, to me, if a movie was doing well, then you went to see it. And you always had a little bit of time because movies didn't disappear after two weeks the way right. they do now. Um, I, I know Porky's ran, you know, in Columbia, South Carolina for, you know, 58 weeks wow so jesus you know stuff like that my wife and i went and saw that new elvis movie oh yeah and exactly one week later it was on one of the streaming it's, services yeah exactly yeah so and not that it was bad or anything it just you know right it's just another revenue stream that they sold it into no exactly you know netflix is <clears> even <throat> when they uh you know they'll guarantee you a theatrical release they're talking two weeks that's it then it's on the streamer. So, I mean, uh, are theaters as, as popular as they were? Uh, because of COVID, no. Um, you know. Seems unfortunate. I loved, I, uh, I, I still love going to the movies, oh, really. No, I just. Absolutely. Well, my wife and I are distraught that the, where we live in California, our go-to movie theater was a regal that has just gone into bankruptcy uh -huh. uh, from the main thing. And, and they've shut it down. And this was a spectacular movie theater. Had like eight or ten screens. 
the you know the chairs the you know the footstool comes up the this the that you know you swing out the table they were so comfortable I'd fall asleep sometimes but <laughs> no but um and that's clothes we're like well, where are we gonna go to a movie you know yeah that's not saying a lot for the movie no, <laughs> yeah true <laughs> no but it's uh you know they've been predicting the demise of movies ever since radio right you know it's like oh radio's gonna kill movies nope. TV is going to kill movies. Nope. Video is going to kill movies. Nope. You know, it's the communal experience of people sitting around a campfire, frankly, enjoying a story together, I think will always be there. I think it's probably because of the situation with COVID and streaming that so changed how people consume entertainment now. I think yeah that's the biggest danger they've faced in in time youtube well youtube and there's like you know quick videos quick well i don't know yeah that's kind of the you know if you tell a good story properly you're gonna kick the shit out of youtube every time i mean youtube's a you know you've got amateurs doing their their thing and people are like uh, watching their friends or their you know they're consuming fashion or, or, or something else um, or being impressed by one or two shots or something. It's not a movie. So Agreed. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what I hope. I love story. I, I think so. And if you tell a good thriller, um, you know, you're going to be okay. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what uh, Knives Out Glass Onion uh, does. Because that's basically a mo- a murder mystery. That's a two and a half hour murder mystery. It's got great cast and everything. Um, you know, I, I think it'll do as well as the original uh, Knives Out, which did incredibly well. But that was before the pandemic, too. So mm. it's going to... I don't know. It's like we got to get this pandemic past us and people have to start going again. And, you know, my hope is that Somebody's going to, you know, come in and take over that movie theater that we love so much. That's right near us. Hmm. Otherwise, we got to travel. The more you have to travel, the more yeah, of a it becomes problem a... it is. It's, you know. Totally. So, what about, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to talk about genre. Like you mentioned, if you had a good thriller. Yeah. Um, a comedy. What What's your favorite, personally? Is it comedy? Mm. Yeah, comedy, yeah. For sure. But like I say, they're hard. Yeah. So, you know, people always ask me, what do you, you know, for film students, you know, what, what should I be like? I go, horror, man. You know, you find a new way to kill a bunch of teenagers in 90 <laughs> minutes, in, you know, inventive ways, and you can do it. And you can do it cheap. Yeah. Because you don't need movie stars. You know, it doesn't take a long time to shoot these things. Um, you know, you can do it for a limited budget. I mean, look at Blair Witch. Yeah, totally. You know, that was an invent. And there's so many shows out there like Blair Witch, um, you know, that, that, that tell a horror story in an inventive way. And some of them are more bloody than others. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, the, the shivers and the rabbits and, you know, Halloween and, uh, Texas Chainsaw and everything, they were all unique, and but they were really <laughs> bloody. And, I, you know, I couldn't even watch my own movies. But, um, <laughs> you know, now you get some like, uh, 
God, what was that one? The black director. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Keel? Yeah, Jordan Peele. Jordan, yeah. Jordan Peele. Peele, yeah. yeah, that's right. His first one, uh, which I'm, oh, it's uh, a single title, but. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, very inventive. And it wasn't bloody, it was just horror upon horror upon horror, you know, and it, it built. So, you know, really, it cost nothing to make. Get so, out? Get out, yeah. So. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so, you know, I, whenever I'm talking to film students and they're saying, what should I be looking at? I said, yeah, find a horror movie. Man, you know, that's your, that's your <laughs> calling card. That's your ticket. You know, it's fascinating. What makes comedy so friggin' hard? Uh, a lot of people think things are f funny that, that other aren't. people don't think are funny. Yeah. Um, and uh, how it plays. I mean, one thing, horror plays around the world. Everybody gets frightened by stuff. Um, but with comedy, some people, you know, don't find certain things funny. Translation doesn't work. Yeah, you know, like something very slapsticky, which Americans tend to like. It uh, doesn't play so well in, in Britain where they tend to like, you know, a little bit more, you know, twists and... and, and Some clever... And, you know, clever thinking. dialogue, you know, yeah. all of those sorts of things. So, and then, you know, you start showing it to the Italians and they have a completely different way. So, you know, and look at the French. Some of their, you know, most famous comedies have never translated anywhere else. Like Jacques Tati, who I think is hysterical... Um, never uh, made it into the United States. And even some of their more uh, mainstream uh, French comedies like uh, Rabbi Jacob and all of that, they never made it. And then they would get translated for the American, like, you know, um, The Lady in Red or One Tall Man with One Black Shoe, you know, that type of thing. They would remake them as American-type movies. And almost never work, <laughs> but interesting. So, do you yeah. try to? Do you think about the comedy, uh, like where it's going to sell around the world, or do you try to like fit it in America? Well, or how we, does that work? We 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 know the main market is Canada and the United States. They're very much the, the similar. Oh, okay. You okay. Know, but in the case of say Goon, you know, we made Goon and we thought, okay, we're making a hockey movie. Great movie. That's very much like Slapshot in a way. Uh, where's it going to play? And it was, we were astonished where it played. <laughs> you know, we, it played well in the United States and Canada, but it ran for weeks and weeks and weeks in Britain and uh, yeah. Australia. <clears throat> I mean, hockey in Australia. It was just, you know, they went on and Germany and other places. They just, they got the humor and um, the heart. And that's one thing that Goon had with a lot of heart. It, it, it was good. Yeah. It was good, yeah. It was very violent and, and, you know, a lot of hockey crude humor and everything else, but it also had the relationship and the actors were lovable and, you know, that type of thing. So it worked. That's interesting that it comes down to that relationship. Yeah. Like, you know, when we, we actually released the movie in Britain first, because the British distributor said, no, we want to go now. We were like, well, we haven't released it yet. And we were worried about piracy and all these sorts of things. And we were astonished at how well it did. So, yeah. Well, I personally loved Goon. Um, I'm not even that big of a hockey fan. So I kind of relate in the British thing, I guess, or the Britain way. 
I, I we we didn't I didn't grow up like a hockey guy. He's he's a martial artist and a boxer, and I kind of grew up with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was clever, uh, in my opinion. And I also have an opinion today that a lot of British stuff, um, especially TV series uh, like that Bodyguard one, has a lot of really clever writing, mm-hmm. and is oh, yeah. it, it, I, I find that they're just killing it. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I mentioned I was born in Boston, mm-hmm. but then I came to Montreal when I was 10. So, and my f- parents were one of the first ones to have a television in, you know, the the town that we grew up in. My my father's a big golfer, and so we we didn't grow up in Montreal. We grew up in a place called Rosemary that was just off the, the island because it had a, a golf course that my father could afford to belong to, and he liked it. Okay. But so we had a television and very few people had television and (laughs) we got two channels. We got CBC English and CBC French. And so my father discovered that an antenna could bring in some of these American channels, which is what he wanted. But uh, and on CBC English, we would uh, get the British comedies. And Mm. uh, I think a lot of the the Canadian comics grew up with that type of thing. This you know the Second City people, okay. Ivan, whatever. They had this thing where they were exposed to British comedy, and which is far more sardonic and uh, clever than totally. a lot of the stuff coming out of the United States, which was more slapsticky or you know situational. And I think that's one of the reasons that Canadians are so good at comedy. Because they've been exposed to this, uh, you know, this stuff c- coming not only out of the United States but also uh, Britain. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I've always th- thought that because a lot of people are like, well, why are Canadians so good at comedy? Uh, and I think it's it's really because they were exposed at that age, and it you know made the American stuff become a little bit more sophisticated, and you know that in turn. Other got other people, but you know you talk about comedy, uh, hockey, not being a hockey guy. Well, because I grew up in Boston and I moved to Montreal for my own safety, I had <laughs> nothing to do with hockey. Oh, because as coming out of Boston, yeah, in Montreal, you could get yourself killed, and <laughs> vice versa. If you were, you know, we would go home to Boston, and the last thing on earth I tell anybody was I was from Montreal because the Bruins and the Canadians, they hated each other. Oh, yeah. And it was, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in Boston Garden. I know. With the Canadians playing. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. If they were to find out I was a Montrealer there, I'd be lynched. Are you a Bill Burr fan? I'm not. A, I don't even know who Bill Burr is. <laughs> okay. Bill Burr is one of the biggest major com- comedians going today, but he's from Boston, oh. and he's a huge hockey freak. Oh. And he hates Montreal. No, <laughs> he loves Toronto. He loves the Toronto, uh, yeah, Toronto fans and all that. Toronto loses. Well, the that's, that's go, true. So it's like, yeah, they're, they're no threat. That's yeah, that's where, true. Montreal was always a, a, a threat. So yeah, no, I stayed away. So it's funny that I've made these hockey movies, and and you know, not just Goon, but uh, you know, you Breakaway. I made my Bollywood hockey movie. I was like, I can't believe, but it did huge with the Indian audience and Southeast Asian audience, not only in Canada, but in the United States. And, you know, I remember getting in a cab in Chicago and, you know, some guy, 
you're a movie producer? What movie you make? And I, I go, well, I made Chicago. Mm, didn't see it. This, that, and, the other. <laughs> and then I realized he's a Sikh. I go, yeah. I made a movie called Breakaway. Oh, the hockey movie. I saw that. I saw that five times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. So, yeah. What inspired something like that? Well, it was brought to me by uh, Vadeva Rani, who was developing it as, uh, you know, he's Southeast Indian. And uh, he brought it to me and said, would you help me put this together? And I read a hockey movie and I had a Bollywood dance scene on ice. I was like, <laughs> this is crazy. But I thought, it just might work. And, um, you know, wow. one of my favorite scenes uh, you know always a you know sports movie was do you remember the bad news bears mm-hmm. you know walter yeah. mathow the drunk coach and he you know he goes out and it, part he doesn't realize until the last minute as part of his job he's got to raise money for uniforms for the kids so he has to sell sponsorships and you know there's a lineup of all the the back of the kids with their sponsorship you know dominoes and you know uh burger king and this and then it comes to his team and it's like Liberty bail bonds, let freedom ring. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's, and that's a scene that I always wanted to have. And of course, we sort of did it in, in Breakaway because all Sikhs are called Singh. Right. Which means... Okay. <laughs> Lion. Lion King, basically. So we did the whole hmm. thing with her. We're patting the back of the various, uh, you know, the, the opponents. And it's this guy, this guy, this guy. And you come to our team, it's like sing, 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 sing. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, that's amazing that uh, I guess do they have rinks and things over there? I wouldn't even know. This, uh, this is such a silly question. No, but they they have two sports. Of course, they play uh, uh, field hockey, and they okay. play this crazy game called kabaddi, which is a combination of lacrosse and uh, rugby, and it's <laughs> completely played without pads and brutal. And uh, it, it, it's unbelievable. So they get the violence of hockey and then they get the technique because they play field hockey like we play okay. hockey, hmm. you know, only they're running. So it's, uh, yeah, no, but so it wasn't so much that they were taken by the hockey, but they were taken by the, the heart of the story. Okay. And that's always See, the there big again. thing with me. The heart. You got to make it. You I gotta, love that. You got to care for the characters. And, you know, you see a lot of uh, movies and you go, I don't like anybody in this. You know, even Elvis, you're talking about Elvis. I, you know, saw it and I thought, yeah, I thought I would like Elvis, but he's a bit of an idiot, you know. And <laughs> They certainly portrayed him that way. Yeah. And, and I wasn't impressed with Tom Hanks' performance. No, well, I, having never, you know, known the Colonel. Sure, that I makes sense too. You know, but uh, you don't like him. And you find him manipulative, and he gets never taken down. And, you know, they invented this thing where, you know, finally uh, Elvis goes, I know about your troubles, and, uh, you know, when we're done, we're finished. Elvis never knew. He never knew that uh, this guy was a fraud and was in the United States illegally and couldn't leave the country. So What a shame. Yeah, so, Hmm. I mean, uh, in that regard. But uh, some other movie I was watching the other day, I went... Everybody in this movie is a jerk. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, why bother? You gotta, you gotta care for the characters. Yeah, and, you know, you I'm mentioned you. Shawshank Redemption. Can you imagine if you didn't like the protagonists? If you didn't like, uh, 
red. Red, or if you didn't, totally, like, yeah, totally. Yeah, we watch that movie at least once a year. Yeah, they're great movies, and you've got to care for them. So, um, all my most successful movies have been, you know, because you they had heart. You cared for the people as raunchy or as crazy or as whatever. I love hearing this. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of the things when I read a script is like, do I like these people? You know, do I care for them? You know, not the bad guy. I don't care if you blow the bad guy up, but you know, you got to care for the guy blowing him up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how many times have you passed on a script and you went, ah, fuck, I shouldn't have done that. A couple. Yeah. I'm, I'm notorious for having turned down airplane. Oh, really? (laughs) Okay. Conversation's over. I was like, what is this? It's a bunch of jokes. This is not a (laughs) habit. This is terrible. So I said, nope. Now, do you feel like if you did make it, maybe it wouldn't have had the same success today, or 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 maybe it would be better? I, I definitely think it uh, wouldn't have. If I had made it, I probably would have changed it beyond a, you know, recognition. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, and uh, the other one, I, I actually wasn't offered it, but when I heard about it, I thought, oh, this is a no. This is never going to be the American Pie series. Okay. Okay. You know. And they're now remaking that or something. Well, I just read this. I don't know. Uh, It could be, but and then I met the guys that made American Pie, and they said, "Well, you know, we based it on Porky's." And (laughs) well, I see that, (laughs) of course. (laughs) I was like, "Oh, really? Okay." (laughs) Oh my god! Such a huge series. Now, on the other side of that coin, that Andrew asked, um, "Have you ever taken a script that after you or while you're making it, go, shouldn't have done that?" Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like more often than yeah, that. No, no, no. No, no. Really only once. Uh, okay, okay. It's only one movie I've never, ever, you know, sort of <clears throat> lived in. Battlefield Earth. Mm, okay. I, yeah, and we tried and tried, and it was just, it was never going to work from the get-go. And, and why and, Why was that? What, what happened? Well, a combination of things. Number one, you know, the script was... L. Ron Hubbard, who discovered, you know, Scientology. So it was, and the book apparently is quite successful. I read the book and I was like, oh my God, it's putting me to sleep here. <clears throat> and the characters were, you know, I mean, the bad guys were really bad and the good guys were like idiots. And, you know, I was like, okay. This is a John Travolta and vehicle. The John Travolta. And I did it, the only movie I've ever done just for the money. And they offered, that was Ely Samaha with, and I had basically sold my soul to get the Boondock Saints made. And part Mm -hmm. of selling my soul was I had to do a movie for him. If he financed the Boondock Saints, which he ended up stealing all the money from anyway, um, and, you know, kept his his company going. But he said, well, now you got to do my movie. And the movie I want to do is the Boondock Saints, is Battlefield Earth. And I remember going to a, a luncheon with Travolta at the Bel Air Hotel with Ely and, you know, and I came out and I went, Ely, this is a disaster. Do not do this. He said, ah, are you kidding? I got a John Travolta movie for, you know, 14 or $15 million. And he, of course, told John he was doing it for 40 And, you know, we started making it. We put it all together. Uh, Roger Christian, who was a young director who was, well, he wasn't young, he's older than me, but, uh, you know, he, his famous thing was that he was the production designer on the Star Wars and Aliens. Okay. 
and uh, had worked uh, with George Lucas as second unit director on some of the other Star Wars. So I loved Roger. He was great. Um, you know, when we were making it the first three weeks, Travolta wasn't there. I thought, well, maybe, maybe we can do this. And, you know, the visual effects were coming together, the miniatures were coming together, all of this stuff. I thought, well, you know, maybe this isn't going to be as horrible as I thought. And then Travolta showed up and just, oh, my God. It all went to hell in a handbasket real quick. Um, and, hmm. uh, yeah, and at that point, it was just all downhill as far as I was concerned. Well, I have a huge question mark above my head right now. Like, why? What, what happened when he arrived? Oh, he just... He was a movie star. I see. And, you know, <clears throat> I thought, okay, this is his vanity project. He's going to be, you know, anything he can do to get this thing over the top. He was just, no, he didn't give a shit. He was doing it for the money as well as I thought. I mean, obviously he had a love of Scientology, but that, on the set, he brought in these Scientologists and I was constantly battling with them because they were, you know, I said, look, we can't have it known as a Scientology movie. So you got to step back. Well, you know, uh, after every take, John would turn and they had their own little monitor over on the side and they would say, yeah, good take or whatever. <laughs> Meanwhile, the director and everything else were totally ignored. And he would just go off and he'd do his thing. And it took him so long to get into the makeup and hair. And yeah. he insisted on taking it off so he could eat for lunch or for, you know, craft service. And then we'd have to put it back on and ah, it just took her. But the big thing was that the look of the film, he came in <coughs> and totally redesigned the aliens or Klingons or whatever the fuck they were called. After about. three weeks of shooting? No, no. Well, yeah. So, and uh, <laughs> so I saw them. They're not tall enough. We had hired the tallest extras that we could get. But these guys in the book are nine feet tall. Right. So nobody's nine Those feet tall. Those are hard to find, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> you know, we got every basketball player in Montreal and listen, put them up. And then we, you know, he still wasn't satisfied. So then we built them kiss boots. That were right on. Mother's six. But of course, I couldn't move in these things. And I remember standing there and Travolta sitting there and the first couple of them step out of the makeup trailer with his kiss boots. And he's like, okay, now we're talking. And I'm like, we're fucking doomed. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, these guys are so not threatening. It's ridiculous. And they couldn't walk. You know, they had these big, long hands. And they were like, grabbed stuff like this. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, my God. You know, a three-year-old could outrun them. <clears throat> it was, um, I don't know, it just got on and on and on. And then we were pouring money at it. And it just took forever to get anything done. And I, I remember Forrest Whitaker would be sitting there waiting to do his take, and I could just see how sad this poor guy was, <laughs> you know, realizing he had made the worst mistake of his career. His <laughs> <laughs> oh, how, no. how long of a shoot was it? I don't really know. It seemed to be interminable. <laughs> And then, you know, Roger uh, was constantly being co-opted by these, you know, Scientology guys. I remember they came to me and they were like, we want to do crew gifts for everybody. And I said, well, that's very nice. What are you going to do? Oh, we're thinking of a jacket. And I said, okay. So I come in and there's like these hundreds of brown paper bags all over the floor of the <clears> studio <throat> lobby. And I said, what are these? 
oh, these are the crew gifts from the Scientology guys. I go, okay. So in each bag is a jacket. Yeah, and there's some other stuff. They're really heavy. Oh, no. So I, go, I can feel this coming. L. Rod, I've read books. Oh, and, and Scientology magazines oh. and stuff. And I went, get this shit out of here. And I, oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? I said, you can't give away Scientology crap to the crew. It's going to get out, and it'll be all over the trade <clears throat> that, you know, we're a Scientology movie, which will sink it. And then Roger came to me and says, oh, I got some great news. You know, it's going to save us some money, which I know we need. But um, so they've offered me a, a place to do the editing of the movie in Los Angeles. And I said, let me guess. At the oh, Scientology no. headquarters on Sunset. Well, yeah, but they said nobody will know about it. No, no, yeah, sure. So don't do it. it you're, you're going to be the director of the Scientology movie. They're going to be after you to join Scientology and blah, blah, blah. Sure enough. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. So he did edit there? Yeah. And when did it get out? Of course it got out. And then did, that, did the it The movie seem- got reviewed as the Scientology movie. <clears throat> really? Wow. <clears throat> I mean, yeah. with L. Ron Hubbard mm. being the writer already, that's enough, I suppose, in one regard, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there was also this thing. I remember Yelly Sabin, I was like, they're going to get every single Scientology in the world. There's 14 million of them. And, uh, you know, they're all going to go to see the movie twice. They promised me that. And so that's, you know, that's 28 million tickets. And I went, Ely, that ain't never going to happen. And I'm sure enough, it didn't happen. A lot of Scientologists went to see the movie. And a few curious non-Scientologists went to see it. But it became, you know, people were laughing in the movie theater. It was just ridiculous. Anyway, to the... <sighs> The only movie I ever regretted. Interesting, because now I'm I want to see this now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it goes back there, to your and thing about some heart. Good things. And... Some of the visual effects are terrific, <clears throat> you know. And I worked with some of the the best <clears throat> miniature guys in the world. They were from Britain, and they did all this stuff. And I was like, wow, you know. And it's just so sad that the movie was such a piece of junk. You uh-huh. know? So. But I, it does Travolta now is going to go on all these other movies, and does he bring that <clears throat> same? No. Okay. No, no. Thank oh, God. He, I like Travol. I like Travol. Yeah. So he brought it because it's L. Ron Hubbard's book. Yeah, he's a Scientologist. Yeah. No, I and know. They but... created him. Right. And he still is a Scientologist, but he he doesn't. You know, I I think er, after that everybody realized how poisonous the whole connection to the Scientology could be, and you know, look, Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. Ali Sheedy. There's all of these actors who are Scientologists, which is fine but you got to know that uh what i i didn't understand about scientology because uh, i don't know a lot of but what i do know is that they teach you that the most important thing is the self and it's all about you and how you feel and how you are perceived and how you are treated and it's all about you 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 well filmmaking is a team experience big time so, you know, in a case, everybody who's ever worked with him, again, that I know of, has had situational things with him and it's been problematic. And, the mm. you know, there are others out there who I've heard are fine. You know, Cruz is a, a well-known Scientologist, and but he controls things and he's got <clears throat> the clout to control things. So people just put up with him. 
Yeah, he's so well known as a Scientologist, but he's literally the biggest movie star in the world or something. Yeah, yeah. Right? And he credits Scientology for making him <sighs> yeah. that way. And, uh, you know, uh, Travolta credited Scientology for doing his thing. And, you know, what can you say? If it works, it works. And for a, a lot of actors are not well-known Scientologists, but a lot of them are. So whatever. It's never appealed to me. And no. I don't, I don't ever want a religion or zats or, or or orthodox or whatever to get in the way of making a movie. Yeah, it makes so. sense. Yeah, it seems completely aside the point, but you know. Well, you know, you don't want to alienate something. So do you mm -hmm. want to make a movie that's so Jewish that only Jews could enjoy right. it? You know, I mean, that's not what Duddy Kravitz was all about. And a lot of Jewish people hated Duddy Kravitz because he was, you know, so conniving and, and grasping and everything else. But, you know, I mean, I, I made another one with Sidney Lumet. The first movie I made with Sidney was, uh, you know, Stranger Among Us, which, you know, was, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on her name. But she played an undercover cop who goes into the Orthodox Jewish thing to, to track down this criminal. And people referred to it as Vitness, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> Vitness? Yeah. It's a joke on how the, the Orthodox Jews pronounce W. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, and that whole uh, milieu. So. But again, you know, you were rooting for somebody. There was a certain amount of, you know, she became enthralled with the, the religion and the family that she was undercover with and all of that sort of thing. So it was, it, it opened up the eyes of the non-Orthodox world to it very much like, you know, witness. Yeah, with, did it with the, uh, the, the Amish. Amish. Yeah, exactly. So, right. you know, um, you can get into and telling stories on religion, but it's got to be open to to other stuff you know to to expose the world to the good and the bad mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. i love the movie witness yeah it's a great movie so yeah very cool so now um a master class for anyone that's listening or watching mm. anyone who endeavors to be a film producer how do you do it Oh, love movies. That's number one. You know, okay. if you don't love the business, you're never going to be good at it. Um, so, you know, and, and I always say, you know, understand the business. Go to film school. So, you know, I was lucky that I had a film school. Prior, if I had been born four or five years earlier, I would have had no film school to go to. <clears throat> Uh, maybe Ryerson, I could have gone and learned to be a cameraman, as I said, but, you know, where I went, it was only the second year that that school existed, and mm -hmm. it was one of only, well, it was the only one that taught film history and, and film theory. So uh, I would have had to go to the U.S. Or, or whatever, you know, but so that, uh, and I didn't even know I wanted to be a film producer, as I said. I didn't even know that I wanted to be in film. I was studying art. Right. And, uh, you know, when I found out my father was pissed off that I didn't want to go to university and his whole thing was, well, you better get a university degree or you're not living here. And when I found out that I could get a degree, a university degree, an actual BA studying movies, I was like, sign me up. Right. So, huh? um, yeah. And then from there, 
you know, you, a lot of it is network. I tell uh, the kids that I lecture, because I lecture at the University of Toronto, I lecture at Ryerson, I lecture at the Canadian Film Center, I'm on the board of the Canadian Film Center. Yeah, I um, go down there every year. Yeah. They have me come in and talk to the directors and the producer mm -hmm. students. Yeah. So, and I say, you know, look around. And especially the producer students, I go, who are these guys you're working with here? You know, who's that director that's got some real smarts? Who's that writer that's got some real smarts? Well, your job as a producer is to support that talent. You know, because people don't understand what a producer does. But the real thing that a producer does is he supports <coughs> the talent and helps put it together. So nurture and find. You know, go to that writer and go, I think you're really good. I want to help you. So I, you know, I'm going to work with you and help you to, tr to get your name out there and get your stuff seen or to the director. I'm going to help you, you know, and we're going to make this little calling card movie and then we're going to try <clears throat> and sell it. And so you hitch your wagon, so to speak, to these other talented people who are more visible in the Hollywood universe. Um, you know, producers are fairly invisible, mm -hmm. which is fine with me. You know, give me the money. But, you know, it's, you're the guy that gets things going. You're the spark. You know, directors don't start stuff. You know, I mean, some like Spielberg, who are producers themselves, right. and have producers working for them, you know, that's a different animal. But a lot of directors, they without a producer, they're useless. So they can't get anything together. So it's the producer that does that spark. So I say, you start doing that. Look for these things. And then try and help them and go along. And, you know, you'll eventually go on with them, you know. And so always be looking around. And then once you get onto a film set, you know, who is smart here? Who's really good? Who have you been put to, you know, who in the studio is going to be helping you? And then you want to know. And it's all about relationships, you know. You don't want to come in as a jerk. You want to come in as a guy that gets things done and is collaborative. So always remember that. It's, you know, this is a, it's a team sport. And you need to be part of that team. So, you know, you don't want to get in there and alienate a lot of people. That doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do your director any good or your writer any good. You want to be, uh, you know the guy that gets things done. So that's what a producer is. So that's what I tell them, you know, so that's the film students I lecture. And uh, even down at the AFI where I occasionally lecture, it's the same thing. I tell them, it's all the same story. Look around, who's here? And, you know, the other thing I'd say hmm. is don't discount Hollywood. It's where it all happens. <clears throat> uh, sooner or later, you got to go. So don't turn up your nose. What do you say about uh, young writers trying to write uh, within what they think is a fine budget? Are this, can can young writers uh, be writing uh, epics, big big? Yeah, I tell them, don't write to a budget. You know, um, and a producer is going to help you do that. So you know, you want to be writing to sell. You want to be doing your best work you know and a lot of things have changed in the old days you know i used to get these scripts around my desk and i'd be reading it and be like oh okay well i think we can do this for a reasonable budget and then the next page is 
the sixth fleet steams around the corner. And you'd be like, holy, well, fuck. Well, you can do that now. <laughs> well, that's true. And it doesn't cost very much. So, okay. you know, don't worry if, uh, you know, anything you can imagine, you can pretty much do. Not that it's free. Right. But, um, you know, if it's, if it's new and unique, you'll figure out a way to get it done. So, you know, it's, uh, that's part of it. Just write. And, and tell the best story you can and the most unique story you can as well. I mean, understand your genre. That's real important. You know, you don't want to be writing a comedy and somebody gets knifed to death on the same yeah. page. But, you know. <laughs> Unless it's really funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, and I'm, I've never been one for mixing genres. Right. So... You know, it's like the Wayan Brothers. I know them. I did a movie with Marlon and everything. But they keep doing this stuff that mixing mixing genres. I'm like, this shit, you know. Uh, maybe it works for your particular audience, but I don't see it. Oh, like works. what? Action comedy kind of thing? Well, no, horror comedy. Horror comedy, okay. Know, like they'll rip off Scream with the... Oh, right, yeah, right. Scary movie. Scary movie. <laughs> it's like, you know. You made one of Andrew's favorite movies, uh, Sidekicks. Yeah, <laughs> when I was young, man, I loved that movie. Yeah, loved it, loved well, it. That yeah. started because I had done a couple of movies with Chuck, who I loved. But the thing mm -hmm. that always impressed me, you know, uh, when we were making Hitman in uh, Vancouver and walking down the street with Chuck, and people, the little kids, would come out, you know, Chuck, Chuck. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. yeah. The little guys loved him more than the older guys. And I mean, missing in action and, you know, yeah. all of that. And Hitman was really violent. So these guys weren't, you know, seeing that. But they knew who Chuck Norris was. And he was starting to fade a little bit by then. And I said to his brother Aaron, I said, you know, Chuck is so popular with these kids. we got to make a Chuck movie for the kids. So we started kicking around, and we came up with the idea for sidekicks. You nailed it. And yeah, we were <laughs> when we were making the movie. They, uh, you know, Schwarzenegger came up with the greatest American hero, and we were like, "Oh shit!" But they totally screwed it up. And we just did sidekicks as a very heartfelt, you know. And Chuck was terrific at it, you know. And uh, mm. Jonathan Brandeis, God rest his soul, mm. um, yeah. was terrific. And we had a very good cast and. No, I always liked that movie, and that was a totally independent thing, and uh, I tell people about the financing of that, they can't believe me. So Can we describe tell, a little yeah, bit of it Tell here? us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know if, <laughs> if you've ever been in Houston. I've never. You're always going to hear about this guy called Mac McInvale, and he's known affectionately in Houston as Mattress Mac. Okay. Because he owns a... Uh, uh, a furniture store called, oh God, I can't remember the name of the store, but it's famous. But he owns one furniture store. And he's also known as very generous and, you know, they get flooded all the time. And he's like, okay, anybody that needs a place to stay for a few days, when, and he lets them sleep on the mattresses in the store, you know, <laughs> and they sort of hang out. He's got a kitchen and, and all these people will come in. He's quite a character. Anyway, long story short, we're, when we put the movie together, I had originally sold it to a group of financiers out of Germany. And things seemed to be going fine. And 
we started scouting for the movie in Houston because Chuck had recently moved to Houston. Right, okay. And he said, um, by the way, I met these guys at a fundraiser, the Mackinvales, and uh, would you do me a favor? Would you? They want to take you to dinner and pick your brain. I said, okay. So Aaron, Chuck's brother, and I go, we have dinner with these guys, and they start telling us what they're doing, and they're going to put all this money into a Tarzan movie starring Greg Luganus, the diver. Yeah. Because their kid is taking diving lessons with the same guy, and they've met Greg, and they think that... that so they start telling me the, the Tarzan story, and I'm like... So I said, what's your advice? And I said, don't. You're going to lose your money. So they're like, oh, well, what are you guys doing? And I said, well, we're, this is what we're... You know, oh, that sounds great. We'd love to get in on that. And I said, well, unfortunately, it's awesome. So... About a month later, I'm in my office in Los Angeles, and knock, knock, knock on the door. I get up, and it's the Macadvales, Mac and his wife. And so what's going on in the movie? You know, we'd sure like to get in. I said, well, unfortunately, it's, it's you know, sold, and I, I can't cut you in, but I don't know. Okay, well, we're, you know, if anything happens, let us know. I said, fine. You know, but two weeks later, knock, knock, knock on the door, and... Uh, by this time, the Germans are looking a little shaky. They, they've missed one deadline. They got another one. So I said, well, I don't mind telling you. These guys are starting to, you know, bug me. And uh, I don't know. I've given them this deadline next week, Friday, 5 o'clock. Put up or shut up. Hmm. Friday at 4.30, knock, knock, knock. It's <laughs> the Maccabales. And I like it. We're here to help you celebrate. I said, okay, fine. So far, I'm not celebrating, but we got a half hour. So <laughs> so we sit there and we're shooting the shit and everything. And five o'clock comes and Matt goes, so? What? I said, <laughs> I haven't heard anything. And there's no money in the bank. So they're supposed to put. And he says, okay, well, we're in. We'll take it. What do you need from us? I said, well, they, uh, they were supposed to put a half a million dollars in the account. He looks at his wife and goes, Linda, write this man a check. <laughs> so she pulls out her little personal checkbook <clears throat> with flowers and bees on it. And do I make it out to you, Don? And I'm like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> she writes me a check for half a million dollars and tears it and says, okay, we'll see you. What's next? I said, well, we're going to, we'll come to Houston and we'll start scouting. And I said, you know, this budget's $7 million. That's not a problem. And okay, they leave, and I look at the check, and I see it's drawn on a, a brokerage account, which means they're still open. So I pick up the phone, and I call, and I go, I'm looking for the broker who represents the McInvales at Merrill Lynch or whatever the hell it was. And uh, I get the broker, and he goes, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I just had Linda and, and Mac McInvale in my office, and they want to invest in this movie I'm making. And he goes, oh, boy. <laughs> and I said, okay, these two are a couple of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, how much is the check for? And I said, half a million dollars. He goes, oh, that's okay. That's <laughs> oh, wow. What? He said, yeah, it'll be good. And wow. That, so he put the money up and there he, he was a funny, funny guy. I mean, he, uh, there was a guy called David Deming who had, Basically, it was famous for having gone to Tokyo after World War II and put the Japanese economy back together. And he introduced the Japanese to what was then called just-in-time manufacturing. 
so that you know he didn't carry a lot of inventory and all of this sort of stuff. And he was famous for, for this, and he was world-renowned as an uh, economist. So the McInvilles could not get their heads around how movies worked. So they brought in David Demings, and he sat with us and he for about two weeks, and he went through everything. And he had this big meeting with the McInvilles and me and Aaron and, and Chuck, and he basically said, this is a terrible business that nobody understands how it works. But these guys seem to know what they're doing, and that's all I can tell you. Go with go. <laughs> that's oh awesome. my god writing the checks and not only that <clears throat> he put the entire seven million dollars up himself then we finished the movie and he says what's next and i said well now i'm going to show it to distributors and, and sell it because we got to get it out there so he said it's a pretty good movie isn't it i said it certainly is you know and so we we showed it to a couple of distributors and we had various and sundry offers and they all wanted, you know, their distribution side. And most of them in those days were like 30 to 45%. That is what they wanted for their cut. So Max said, well, that seems awfully unfair. I put up all the money and, you know, they're getting all of this. And they didn't take any risk or anything. I said, well, you know, that's how the studios work. But then they're going to put up the money for the P&A and all that. So hmm. he said, well, how do I better this? And I said, well... There are these things called rent-a-studio deals where you can you put up the PNA, and they release the movie and they they take much less because they have nothing to risk at all. He said, "Well, could we investigate that?" And that's when we went. I went to TriStar, and they said, "Yeah, we'll take it on a rent-a-studio deal." And I went to Mac and I said, "Mac, they estimate this is going to cost seven million dollars to release." Mm. Okay, and he. <laughs> This is a great story. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. Well, he not only did he make all of the production budget back, he also made all of the P and A that he put up back at the end. And where I hear about Mac all these days now is like he's this incredible gambler who will bet you know twenty million dollars on the Super Bowl or fifty million dollars on the World Series or something. Guy's a gambler, and he's done incredibly well, and. He's also just a solid, down-to-earth guy who happens to own like five Ferraris or something, but you know, also takes care of his people in Houston. So yeah, wow. that is the most incredible finance story I've I've got. So what was he bet? He was betting on you, betting yeah. on yeah, and Chuck and Chuck. I think it's a good yeah, bet. But, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow, that's and great. The only other he never did another movie, <clears throat> but uh, his wife convinced him to to finance Chuck's um, fitness videos. Okay, right. And uh, they did incredibly well with those as well. So, yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah, no, it's great. It's and good I to still, know, based I've, on the fact that you oh, yeah. dig that movie. I still love that white ninja scene at the end. It yeah. was just, it, it, every yeah, once in a while, I'd YouTube it or something. <laughs> i yeah. just watch it. The main thing with Chuck was he was absolutely the worst romantic lead in history. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, so he was supposed to have this relationship with a high school teacher who was, you know, but... Oh wow! Really? Uh, even in the Hitman, uh, God, uh, the actress Alberta Watson—they're supposed to have this hot and steamy love scene—and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "Jesus Christ! Just fucking kiss her!" You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny because yeah. I really can't picture him being too romantic either. No, that's really funny. No, but nice man. Uh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. So, have you met him? Uh, no, but I spoke to him on the phone, and uh, we've written letters back and forth back in the letter days. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. 
because I ran a big martial arts club and uh, tried to get Chuck up to do like some sem- seminars and stuff. Hmm. But he was out of that by then. And he he wasn't going to come up. So yeah. No, his brother is uh, actually his brother was Chuck Standen. Yeah, I mean, even when we were doing sidekicks, I mean, <clears throat> you know, Chuck could kick so high, but that was it, and that was you know, Aaron <laughs> took over, who was I guess Aaron's about five years, six years younger than Chuck, looks a wow. lot like him. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> interesting. Well, that, that's, that's a great story. That's wicked. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, do short films have pull? Uh, no, they're but they're what are called. I don't discourage them because they're calling cards, as we say. So, young director, he wants to get noticed. What's it hurt to make a yeah a short, shoot something? Especially if you can finance it, you or your uncle or your parents or whatever mm-hmm. finance this short movie. It's a good way to get people to pay attention to you, because it's one thing to go into a, a meeting with a Hollywood executive. Now, if you can even get a meeting in person because nobody's in the office. Right, true. But, um, you know, you leave it behind and say, you know, this is my short. I'd like you to take a look at it. Okay, great. Thank you. We'll see you. Now you can just and send they, it over the internet. And, well, it takes a short or, you know, <clears throat> passes it along to an assistant. And the assistant goes, fuck, this is really good. Goes in and says, you got to see this. Or... He goes, this is stupid, right? you know, but generally assistants want to be the bearer of good news. They want to find somebody that, you know, makes them worth it to their, uh, their bosses. So, and they know their bosses, they, they get to know their, they uh, know tastes what's and... going to do and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've had a lot of stuff from assistants that go, you got to read this. And I'm like, uh, do I have to read this? Yes, you have to read this. Hmm. And you know, that's how a lot of stuff gets through the barrier to me because I can't read everything. Of course not. And, um, you know, that's, uh, that's how it happens. And so with a young director, you know, and uh, especially if they're interested in going into the TV side, you know, because TV eats up directors like crazy. They burn through them like mad. And they're open always to new talent, and especially diverse talent. So, so many women are getting gigs in television and uh, so many, you know, young blacks, young uh, Southeast Asians, young, you know. Absolutely. Uh, it's television because they eat up this talent and just go with, you know, and there's so much out there, they, they need people. So if you've got a decent calling card um, and this director goes, well, I'm doing this series and, you know, we change directors every two weeks. We'll throw you in. And then you do okay, and then you get another one, and you get two the next time, you know, this type of thing. Right. So that's how, that's how it's going. Yeah, I mean, the the, the thing I wouldn't want to be is a, a white, older male <laughs> director. <laughs> because your days are numbered, buddy. True enough. So, yeah. Yeah, we see that. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. It's, it's supposed, to, I think that's supposed to be disappointing on this side of the table. But no, I'm just kidding. As a white guy, no. Well, no, it's just the diversity. diversity. Sure. No, no, yeah, no, it yeah, makes no. sense. It, it does make so yeah. much sense. And we see it every day when we go to set. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 a yeah, it's very still, good thing. Talent will out. So, you know, I say that, and uh, you know, directors bemoan these things. But if you if you've got the chops, you're going to get hired. You know, mm-hmm. so. 
Yeah, Very cool. Yeah. Well, Don, um, before we close up shop, we would love for you to sign our table. Sure. And uh, people will watch this on YouTube, but they'll listen everywhere else. So this is the part <laughs> where everyone listening on Apple, Spot, Apple or Spotify just Any get to hear you scribble. Particular? No, I think no, uh, you, you choose. Yeah, do whatever you want, wherever too at the table. If you, you know, if you want to crawl along the top over here, no. <laughs> Charlie Guns, hey hey hey. Yeah, I man. love Charlie. Yeah, Charlie's great. Yeah, yeah. God, that's a my biggest problem is I bring directors into his his shop and I can can't get them out. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's beautiful in there. Yeah, God. Oh, he's always calling me like. They're trying to shut me down again, Don. You got to write a letter to you know the prime premier or this or that, the other. God. All right. We're gonna say it once again for you listeners. That's Don's sharpie scratching across the table. <laughs> yes, it is. But even on. Visual, you can't see it. You can see, uh, yeah, no, signing. totally, totally. One of these days, we'll <clears throat> we'll uh, post a picture and all that kind of thing. Just gotta fill it up a little bit. Beautiful. There we go. Fabulous. Now you're gonna find another place for somebody else to sit. <laughs> or, or <laughs> yeah, move, yeah. Or move the table. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. Don, thank you very much for coming. You're welcome. Thank Don, you. it was, it was such a pleasure, conversation, man. man. Yeah, <laughs> this is amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, cut it, Dean.